Why is it that we see nothing but progress behind us, but we anticipate nothing but disaster ahead of us? And when I look back, I see basically progress. Like I said, I wouldn't want to live 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Absolutely not. To me, I would rather live today. So why would I? Why would my natural incl inclination be to think that the next that the next years will automatically be worse? I mean. It was like a year ago that we saw, you know, you know, this release of ChatGPT, and you know, I, there are maybe a few news stories at the beginning about how neat it is and what it can do, and wow, you can create these images, and then it became job loss and AI doomer. They're going to kill us, and the touchstone every story in every news story was a story of fiction, the Terminator. Hi, hi! Welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, I'm speaking with James Pethakoukis. He's the author of *The Conservative Futurist: How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised*, and I think that title says it all. We discuss techno-optimism, looping in Mark Andreessen's recent techno-optimist manifesto. We discuss the media, the right-wing realignment, populism, and his opposition to it. The coalitions in DC and why the tech legislation of the current age matters. I think this is the perfect from the New World episode because everyone in the audience, no matter which faction you're in, has something to listen for, and you'll see that right when we get to the episode. And if you like it, the best thing you can do to support the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. Nothing beats your recommendation. And hopefully, you're not just helping us, but you're helping someone who has similar interests, similar habits, and who will enjoy the show as well. Without further ado, here's James Pethakoukis. The news of the day, hot off the presses, is Mark Andreessen's tech manifesto, and that's going to be very related to the topic of your book. I already explained it in the intro, but. The most interesting thing that's happening in the world right now is kind of the tech self-awareness. So, what do you think? First of all, like, what do you think Mark Andreessen's manifesto? What kind of self-awareness does it show of itself? And you know, how widespread it is? Is it? How many people in tech are feeling this way? Brian,、uh, I think, I think there is an awareness in Silicon Valley. That there has been this,、uh, there's been a criticism. I think I think it's awareness of a couple of things. One, certainly that there's been a a criticism of Silicon Valley that it doesn't do anything important, that it、uh, creates social media platforms and it creates new kinds of digital currencies, and you know, and there can be a debate in how important that will prove to be. Eventually, but there's and you know I'm in Washington D.C. and there's been a criticism that Silicon Valley used to do big things and now it does sorts of you know maybe financially important but ultimately inconsequential and I think we're at a moment where that criticism、uh, I think should fade because consequential things are happening. And I when I when I look at that essay by Mark Andreessen, I think there's a recognition that this is a critical moment. 
that we don't want to make the sort of anti-progress mistakes of the past. And one way to not make those mistakes is to have powerful, widely respected, widely heard voices make the case for progress. That those voices have been more or less absent for a half century in this country. And we can dig into what, who those voices used to be, why that happened, but who has been making the case for progress. And if folks in Silicon Valley are waiting for somebody else to do it, I mean, you know, I'm doing it. (laughs) You know, I don't know if that's enough by itself, but they need to do it for themselves and become powerful, culturally relevant, politically relevant voices uh, for progress. And that's, and that I think is an awareness um, that is, that is like deeply enmeshed within that essay. Yeah. It's interesting that you use the term progress because I think that means different things to different people, right? Like you're in DC. I think a lot of DC people would not necessarily consider, you know, AI to be progress. They might consider like, you know, electing Barack Obama to be progress. So uh, how exactly are you using that term? Yeah, I, I think progress is a, a society that has, a society is progressing if it has a greater ability to solve problems. And, often, and oftentimes the way it solves those problems or ameliorates those problems, uh, makes, them, makes them less bad, improvement. Uh, and those problems, can be, those problems can be a lot of things. Those problems could be um, poverty. They could be, uh, you know, the pace of rising living standards. It could be the climate. It could be making your your planet more resilient. Uh, if there's a big chunk of ice in space headed that way, I think the ability to solve problems to me is progress. Now that is not sort of the political progressive uh, definition. And again, I, and again, the focus of my book is on technological progress and economic growth which I think are the best ways over the long run to solve a lot of big problems. Um, that the lack of recognition of that fact and, uh, and the fact that those things create the foundation sort of for everything else that we do. Listen, uh, countries that, are, that fail to do that, that fail to grow, that fail to make the lives of their citizens better in a way that is really tangible and palpable and recognizable to their citizens, a lot of other bad things start happening. People beca- and if you know people become um, more willing to embrace things that are illiberal in, the, in those kinds of environments. Uh, they've, they've, if, a, if, a, if a country which is a, uh, a, a market economy, liberal democracy fails to sort of provide those kinds of material benefits, people will look elsewhere. Um, I mean, it's no, I mean, it's, it shouldn't be any shock that, that in the United States, when we had a period of allowing in lots of new immigrants and civil rights was a period in this country, the 1960s, which we had very rapid economic growth. I think those two things go together. Now, if you don't like those things, if you don't like people coming to your country 
to do great things with their lives and create a better world for their children. And if you don't like people to have civil rights and equal rights and the ability to, to determine their future in the political in a political way, then maybe you think that's bad. Uh, I don't think that's bad. So to me, that's what progress is. It's the ability to solve problems. And again, the best way to solve those problems is to be a rich, technologically advanced country. Right. There's this, you know, there's the economic growth theory of political change, right? This is like Fukuyama. Uh, there are many, you know, that not not just him, but, you know, there's many economists believe this, that, you know, first you get the growth, first you get the societal, um, the kind of technological improvement, the ability to, you know, have a safe, secure, reliable job, reliable financial payments, reliable, you know, investments, ability to get a house, and those things eventually develop into a kind of Western-style system. Um, what's interesting to me is you talk about... Uh, the, the title of your book is The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Right, But both parts of that are very interesting. But, you know, it feels like uh, there's... So, so there was this tweet uh, or this retweet by Matt Iglesias, which was something like, uh, the definition of neoliberal is everyone who, uh, it seems like the definition of neoliberal is everyone who believes in basic economics. And <laughs> I, I get the sense that that's kind of how you're using conservative here, right? The definition of conservative is everyone who believes in basic economics. Um, but but go a little bit deeper into, uh, I know you also talk about the upwingers and downwingers. Maybe that's also who um, believes in basic economics. But <laughs> talk, talk about the kind it. of political divides that you're seeing. Uh, right now, <laughs> yeah, on this yeah that's a good way of putting it. You know, people believe in basic economics. You know, I work at. I mean, it's you know, the, the conservative part's a little bit uh, truth and labeling. Uh, I mean, I work uh, at the American Enterprise Institute, which is considered to be a right of center think tank. And I'll have you know that I've been here, and my basic background's in journalism, but I've been at AEI since 2011, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody use the phrase neoliberal. Like I, so <laughs> like I, I don't know what like. So I only, only place I ever see it is on Twitter. So um, you know, sometimes you know, like the phrases people and the words people use in social media don't have a lot of relevance, sort of my everyday life. But yeah, like what you know, what am I conserving, right? You know, so what's you know that's it's right in the world conserving. What am I conserving? And uh, as my my definition is of America, I think this is certainly true. I think of American style conservatism, and at least it was true up until about 2015. Is what we are conserving is the tremendous inheritance of liberalism. And what I mean by that is the ability to make decisions about your own life, that people are important, the ability to make political decisions, political freedom, uh, economic freedom, the ability to start a business and reap the rewards of those business and not have someone take away that business because it, uh, infringes upon the power of incumbents or somebody in the state. So broadly economic and political freedom, and which I think is a tremendous inheritance. I think that's why the West got rich. Uh, and I don't, and I want to preserve the very best of that. And I think that inheritance creates the foundation for future prosperity, for future human freedom and human flourishing. So to me, that is broadly, to me, it's not about, you know, it's certainly not about stasis. 
and it's certainly not wanting to return the country to a period of the past. And it's it's not about, you know, it's not about a, a particular tax rate or something like that. It's about economic and political freedom, which I I was I would hope I would not have to make a case for. Uh, uh, but maybe maybe we do. Uh, maybe people who are for these things have gotten lazy and thought it was so obvious that you know that people who don't think that have sort of snuck up on us. But that is what I am trying to. And if you want to go to a, a non-American conservative, a British conservative, Edmund Burke, who writes famously about about our connection, the connection between the past and the present and the future. Uh, and if you care about that thing, if you that connection to the past, the inheritance of the past, how it created the present, and how it can create a, a prosperous future for your your children, both literally, uh, certainly in my case, I have seven kids, or the children of humanity. Yeah, so that's 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 what I'm conserving. I'm I'm, I'm conserving that inheritance and hope. And I again, I think it's I think it's how we create broadly how we create a, a, a future that we want to live in. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so certainly you're kind of preaching to the choir here. But uh, I think I know many people who might listen to this podcast uh, who I, I think you said something like this, right? That that would be surprised that this is something that, you know, people are debating at all. Maybe, maybe they understand in the sense of the classic, you know, left-right debate. Some people want more equality. Some people want more growth. But uh, this might be a useful question. What is what is a kind of conservative anti-futurism, right? Who are people who would call themselves conservatives who kind of like think the opposite of you? Yeah, they would think that uh, this that this sort that all this you know lovely frou frou talk about progress and growth, all it will give us is uh, disrupted communities. Um, you know, uh, people, you know, losing their jobs because of change, probably those jobs will go somewhere else, not the United States. I'm speaking specifically about the United States here, um, that, uh, the people who are in charge of the technological progress don't really care about their families, want to create a future that's just very good for a certain elite. And they want to dominate our lives and they want to, uh, you know, in the most extreme forms. And again, it's, it's you know, a very popular website among conservatives. It's still the Drudge Report. Uh, and, I, and, and I think in, you know, my entire memory of when the Drudge Report talks about Silicon Valley and progress, it is uh, all the crazies in Silicon Valley want to upload their brains and, <laughs> and, or, and, and want to, uh, you know, turn their bodies into robots and they want everyone else to live in, you know, like, and now it's like classic in, in mile high, in pods inside mile high skyscrapers and eat, uh, eat bug food for protein. So right, right. So no, I will not eat the right, bugs. Right. I will not sleep in the pod. I will not sleep in the pod. So sometimes, and, yeah. you know, I, I, my Twitter account or X account or whatever it is, um, you know, isn't a particularly trolly kind of account, but sometimes every time I see a story about bug protein or, you know, that recently there, you know, there was a, you know, a merger between two companies or something so they can start building uh, bug protein in the United States, you know, for pets, for pets. Uh, I always just put that out there and see what kind of reaction I get. <laughs> so I think among people who are calling themselves conservatives, uh, I think a lot of people who probably voted for Donald Trump, they uh, 
they think that America is going in the wrong direction has been. So if you progress, that sounds just like more of the same wrong direction we've been going. And you and they don't like America, the way America has been going. And they don't like the fact that, you know, the 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 nature of our society is becoming different and always changing. And boy, couldn't we go back to a period before before, you know, the Immigration Act of the 60s? It was a different country. And even for a poorer country. Well, at least will be the kind of America they recognize uh, and, and and cherish. And if I could just point to just a perfect example, a perfect example is I remember, uh, uh, I, I think this was when uh, Donald Trump, I think was running. I think he was he was running for president the first time, and he did a big um, event with a bunch of trucks behind him, and he talked about the America's truckers, uh, and there was no recognition that that is that is a that is a very hard, rough job, a job, a job that could change a lot due to automation. Uh, it was in Pennsylvania. He totally ignored the economy of advances in healthcare and robotics and AI that's happening in Pittsburgh. It was really a like a, a, a moment out of time where you had someone in front of a truck talking about the trucker as if it was literally still sort of 1965 or the 1970s when when there's this whole sort of interesting cultural moment around trucks and truckers and cb radio and there were tv shows about truckers it was really a throwback and that that's sort that to me would be sort of the conservative uh you know anti-progress or as i call in the book a downwing kind of conservatism right so Brian, do you remember the big? Do you remember the? the have you heard about the the cultural trucking moment in the seventies? You should go. You should go and look at it. It's, uh, it was it was an amazing it was an amazing moment. They had truckers with they had truckers with monkeys with them. We were crazy about trucks. <laughs> yeah, that uh, I do. I have heard of it. I, I do have people who uh, have talked about it before, but oh, know, I, I can't say I'm. It was a it, 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 it was a time. Point. It was certainly a time. Yeah. So. I think there's two wings of this anti-futurism um, or, or maybe one of them you wouldn't consider anti-futurism, but there are people on the right who say, you know, pro- progress, progress is good, but the way we're doing things, we're not going to get, we're not going to get it or we're not going to get enough of it. I can think of Peter Thiel as someone in this camp, right? Who, who believes that, you know, there, there needs to be uh, significant reform, uh, so, some of which might be reform that we both agree with uh, in order to uh, continue or to return to a previous rate of growth. And then there are people who think that growth itself is bad or at least not necessarily good, right? I'm thinking of something like Mary Herring and someone like Mary Harrington, for example, uh, in that camp. So, I mean, let's start with the people who think that, you know, the, the current system uh cannot proceed, right? I think Peter Thiel uh, had a famous essay. I'm not sure if he still believes this, where where he talks about um, it, it may come down to one man who builds who builds a, a, a machinery that keeps markets safe from socialism, right? He, he was talking here about Bitcoin, of course, but that may, may, may as well be, you know, open source AI as well. But you have someone like Thiel who believes that the way that, you know, society or governance is going, that we won't be able to return to the kind of economic growth. So, so like sees, sees a kind of similar 
goal in terms of technology, in terms of economic growth, in terms of those kinds of progress, but doesn't see it stemming from, you know, liberal, at least the way, you know, most people would think of it, liberal democracies, but rather sees it in, you know, either network states or charter cities or something like that. Yeah. Um, where, where do those people fit in the coalition? I, I like to think that that, that that kind of belief and that kind of skepticism about certainly uh, American democracy, American governance, is really a criticism of a kind of post-global uh, financial crisis moment, which has turned into more like a decade or more, um, when you saw a period. Remember, we, so we had, you know, the you know the big '90s productivity boom, which actually extended into the early 2000s. So it kind of didn't seem like it, uh, but it did, and that began to fade even before the global financial crisis. So then you we have this global financial crisis, and it's not followed by a return to the productivity boom, but by slow growth, slow. Um, slow productivity growth. Uh, and at the same time, you have uh, at least one country which is doing something very different, China, uh, growing rapidly, seemingly catching up to the United States uh, across a variety of technological fields. And I think whether or not you think that we should become like China, where you have this you know, master plan and, and funds are, are subsidizing particular sectors i think the the success of china and at the same time the comparative stagnation of the united states created sort of this deep unrest with how we were doing things and could we ever catch up was there enough confidence in either the effectiveness or the support of free enterprise uh to really become a fast, a fast growing uh, country again. And, and, and whether it's, um, you know, you have, uh, uh, I mean, Hayek and Joseph Schumpeter, uh, great, sort of these great economists of the past. And the book, I, 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 one of my, you know, conservative futurist model we can talk about later is this, this guy, Herman Kahn, um, all wrote about sort of the difficulties of rich societies sort of, continuing to be risk-taking entrepreneurial societies. They become rich. They become complacent. They begin thinking more about the downsides of, of growth. And you can certainly see that, that manifesting in the United States over the past half century. And then it seemed to, I think, maybe accelerate after the financial crisis. And the conversation was about you know, using this as sort of a substitute for technology because it also disrupts trade, where we began really focusing on the disruption to some American communities uh, by trade with China, uh, Chinese imports. And I think if you stood back and you looked at that, where you seem to have a culture that, uh, a certainly a popular culture that was sort of anti-progress, anti-growth, anti-capitalism, anti-entrepreneur, and you saw politics focusing on uh, sort of merely the people who suffered from 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 change. Uh, I think it's very easy to wonder, like, if this is all going to work. 
Like what, what, what is going to change this? What is going to change this dynamic? And I think, and I, and I, and, and I address this in the book. So what, so those are the headwinds, right? I mean, how much conversation have we talked about? Have we had about inequality over the past decade versus uh, the downsides of having slower growth? The conversations have been about inequality. So the, so you have a fairly, Brian, do you think I sort of described this okay? Like these, yeah, the yeah. The I think that you're, yeah, you're talking about this in terms of. I mean, I mean, here, here's where I do want to push back. Yeah. I, I think that the the, the narratives. Uh, I mean, I want to believe in this that we're going to get, you know, a resurgence in technology. You know, as you describe in the book, you know, we have vaccines, we have uh, AI, we have all right. of these, you know, developments. Obviously, yes, vaccines not completely new, but you know, improvements in vaccines. And we're, you know, the, I think that the public is going to have one of two reactions, and maybe different people have different reactions. One is the story we tell about the past, the kind of Fukuyama story, where people see the growth, they feel the growth around them, and they, you know, become more and more tolerant. They become, you know, in, in the kind of you know, politically neutral sense of the word, in the kind of classical sense of the word, they become more and more willing to allow people to explore, to innovate. Uh, and then there's the opposite reaction, right? People see these new technologies on the rise, mm-hmm. and then they're they're fearful. They want to ban it. They want to, you know, they, they have a negative reaction to it. Right. And to me, like th- these two things seem like they're contradictory, right? It, it it seems to me a little bit contradictory that on one hand you have, you know, the idea, the the Fukuyama story of the the richer a country becomes, the more it embraces sort of liberal democratic values. And also, you know, you look at you look around the world. Who is most uh, aggressive towards AI? You can argue that China is aggressive towards foreign AI, not necessarily domestic development of AI. But other than that, the most aggressive people in terms of regulating AI is the European Union. Uh, it's it's not India, right? It's not uh, it's it's not these various third world countries um, who actually love who who wants more development of AI because they're you know they're uh, their citizens are using it to to make a life for themselves, to to you know reach towards uh, reach towards first world standards or first world jobs. They're making you know uh, many of them are making large amounts of money on the internet as well. So you do have this asymmetry, right? You you have this asymmetry um, between kind of what we tell ourselves about the past, about this feedback loop of progress, and what we see you know across the world today. Right. No, listen, I, I, and I think if I was a a, a citizen of Belgium, uh, I would be telling you a different story than what I'm what I'm trying to tell you. Um, uh, I, I think Europe is a, a different situation. Even though you know we're, we're all rich countries, that Europe's rich, America's richer, rich countries. Uh, I think they have a different view about uh, about progress and risk. Um. But like the the story, the story, sort of the story of progress is not is not a story that people have had much recent experience with. Um, you know, you know, to me, the 1990s boom seems like it was yesterday. For most people, it seems like it's a long, a long, long time ago. Uh, so they so they they really do not have experience of rapid progress, economic growth, productivity growth, all boats rising. Uh, the example I'd like to point out is, you know, 
you know, during the 90s, we had rapid growth, which inherently means there's going to be a lot of disruption. Things are changing. But it was also a period of rising inequality. And people didn't really much care because it seemed obviously that things were getting better for everybody and the country was moving in the right direction. All those polls about, do you think, you know, do you think the country's on the right track? You know, I think by 2000, it was like 70%. And it's pretty hard, you know, in, in this world to get above, you know, like, you know, 60 or 70%. So that was, that was a scenario. I think where we got a glimpse, a glimpse of what it, what it's really like. And that's a powerful story that, again, is now a generation ago. So people don't have that to easily fall back on. And then looking forward, they only have images of dystopia um, be uh, because of Hollywood and other things. So these are huge. These are huge headwinds. And to sort of get back to your original question, like, why would this change? Well, I think as I write in the book, I think there are emerging tailwinds that will really help. Um, I mean, just brief, I think the fact that we seem to be having in a, a, a cluster of technologies, some of which will help boost the other uh, in energy, in uh, biotechnology, space, and, and yes, AI. I mean, those can be powerful building blocks uh, to create a more sort of pro-progress culture that seeps into politics. I mean, those are actual things happening, and it would be very hard, I think, to change the direction if all I had to go on was, um, you know, Uber and ride sharing. As important as awesome as that as that is, uh, that does not seem like that is a that that is a game changer. Right. This is the this is the one thing I want, you know, I know a lot of VCs are listening to this podcast right now. You know, that's one thing that I that I want them to hear is that with every great wave of technology, there's also a great wave of marketing. You know, and that marketing can be immensely pro technology. You know, you saw this along with the Apollo project. That that marketing can be immensely anti-technology. And I think we've seen that in the past decade. And, you know, if, if, if you want a time to invest in kind of the marketing, now is exactly that time. You know, we need more techno-optimist manifestos right now. And yes, this is a moment. Listen, my entire, you know, pretty much my entire life has been spent during a period, some call the great stagnation, long stagnation. I call it the great downshift, which wasn't, which wasn't literally stagnation, but I think comparatively it was stagnation. So, and then we had this, so we had this, then we had this moment like in the nineties of, uh, of, of real anticipation and actual tangible progress. And that faded. I, this, I think is now a third moment. And I think, listen, now is the time. Like if you want to make your voice heard and you think, Technology is great and it can, you know, it's going to, it's going to solve some problems and maybe it'll cause more problems, but then it'll solve those problems tool too. And the net effect is that we keep moving forward. Like if you want to write a manifesto, whether you're Mark and Dries or somebody else, like 
we can we need those manifestos. And what, one thing I find really interesting, I talk a lot about you know popular culture in the book in addition to economics. Listen, I wish there were more billionaires who liked science fiction and were willing to finance you know uh, very sort of pro progress science fiction as we can. I think we essentially saw with Jeff Bezos bringing the expanse, which I view as pro progress science fiction actually some don't uh, to, to Amazon. We can wait for that to happen. We can wait for Hollywood uh, to, to figure it out and figure out there's a market for stories that aren't unrelentingly bleak. Or we can do it ourselves. We now have, t- we now have tools where you can, you know, first of all, I'm no, I'm no artist, but I can create great images of the future with mid journey. Or, or 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 now with uh or now with uh you know, you know AI right yeah, or yeah. And, and obviously there are people now already making films so we can begin to make a very attractive slick watchable films and images about the future we don't need to wait so people who are who have far more about <laughs> you Brian who have far more artistic ability than me or whether they're artists. Or the writers, now is the time to put out your manifesto, create your podcast, you know, uh, cr- you know, you know, tweet great pro progress facts. I think now is the time. Uh, I don't want to miss this opportunity and live in a world where we've, where we've, uh, you know, every every large language model needs to be approved by the AI agency, where you know where the uh, F- where the FAA is made it impossible. Uh, to to run a, a a rocket industry where, my gosh, you know, we're sitting here in the mid 2030s and we're still figuring out how to regulate regular nuclear reactors, much less small nuclear reactors or nuclear fusion reactors, because that's all possible. Like if you would look at the past, you'd think like that seems far more likely than. Right, right. Than it's the like opposite. Peter Thiel, you know, yes. I was promised flying fear, cars. Right? That's and his got, fear. Yeah. And we got uh, 180 characters. Right? That we is didn't... my fear. I live in Washington. Listen, I mean, my experience with Silicon, at Silicon Valley, people come out here like they can't wait to leave. Like <laughs> it's, it's, dreary. it's dreary. Listen, if you've ever spoken to a congressional staffer, like what they will tell you is we can't do that. What's your great idea? That's unlikely. No, I don't think we can. I mean, that, I mean, you yeah. have a lot of gloomy 28 year olds. Uh, so that, you know, that that is a reason for pessimism. But I think, and again, I have a lot of reasons for optimism. The cluster technologies, we can talk about the others, but certainly the opportunity created by these technologies to really change the kind of story we tell ourselves and giving us the ability to tell those stories is pretty important. Right. I mean, I do think with AI, it's a bit different because AI is expanding, you know, the range of what kind of mediums you can tell. I think that was something like social media, which kind of amplifies what is already popular, that kind of, you know, doubles down on revealed preferences. That won't necessarily lead to kind of more uh, futurism or or it will lead to, you know, more doomerism, I think. You know, it will lead to more pessimism about the future when people, I mean, you talk about this in the book. You talk about, uh, you talk about risk aversion. You talk about negativity bias. We, the, the problem that's with, who we I are think, right like you know there's a lot of that in us yeah i i think for someone like me who wants that kind of 
positive story to exist. I'm just worried that it doesn't sell, right? I've actually this is actually a lot of, you know, for the for the listeners, for the kind of behind the scenes stuff. This is a lot of what I've been trying to do in the background, just looking at, you know, what kind of stories can you tell to convince people? To me, like there there's a few stories that are most likely to convince people. Um in in terms of like conser- like the intra-conservative debate in terms of like the conservative anti-futurists. I think one thing is just, you know, um, the, the, the regulators will be like much more detrimental to your life than the technologists, right? The, the, the people who want to take away your freedoms are much scarier than the people who want to, you know, build chat GPT. Uh, and, and I think most of them, you know, a, a agree with that, right? Like, like very few people on the kind of conservative, you know, anti-futurism side, even if they're skeptical of AI, may, very few people will disagree with that statement. Um, and then with regards to uh, people who are, uh, t- to me, like people who are like skeptical that we'll get future growth, they're not really, you know, th- th- they don't oppose uh, like the, the attempt, right? You know, like someone like Peter Thiel won't say like, oh, just give up on AI now. No, he'll, he'll say, you know, we shouldn't regulate this. I'm kind of skeptical of, of its ability to um, create change, but, you know, you guys should still do it, right? Um and yeah, and people who are maybe more concerned about inequality, I, I do think like change changing I, I do think like the libertarian line of like the greatest inequality is inequality between you know different countries. Uh, for, first of all, I think that's true, right? Second of all, even if it doesn't persuade them per se, I think it does create a kind of um, it, it it does create a kind of, uh, understanding, Th- they won't say you know like oh I've now completely changed my my um, my priorities from you know trying to reduce inequality with regulation in the U.S. to either increasing immigration or you know increasing global development. You know very few of them will say that, but it'll at least create a kind of sympathy, right? They'll say you know I get where you're coming from. Um, first of all, do you like disagree with any of that? Do you, do you think that those are not, you know, or, or like, do you have any improvements over that in terms of what kind of stories we should be telling, what kind of arguments we should be making in in favor of conservative futurism? And, you know, second of all, you know, if this is, you know, if this or whatever alternative you have is the best, like, should we, should we be worried about what, you know, increasing, uh, media exposure or like social media is, is there an inevitable path to that and more pessimism yeah well listen i think i think you know the, you are fighting sort of a natural inclination and you look at you know behavioral uh, psychology behavioral economics you know you know all the biases that we have a sort of that make us risk averse and cautious um, so you're so right. So that so you are you are you are fighting that. And how do you and I think I think the way to fight that is one, like give people actual tangible results in their so you have like a chicken or the egg problem, right? Do you have do you have the kind of culture that will support the kind of progress that will create those tangible results? Or somehow do you get those tangible results and that helps uh the uh the culture? Well, preferably those those that is a simultaneous pincer movement in which both both things happen. Um, but I, on the story part of it specifically, I think one of the greatest things we've seen happen lately is sort of the, the number of, uh, 
of movies, uh, whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, sort of about about entrepreneurs and building building business and how like really hard it is uh, to do that. Um, there was there was a great one about Tetris, which you know showed like it was a great you know it was a, really a, a, a powerfully like anti communist pro freedom pro globalization film uh, or something even like The Bear. I don't know if you've watched The Bear, you know about you know uh, a a a, a world class chef goes home to help run his family's like little beef restaurant in Chicago. I'm from Chicago, and. It, and not only to show like the value of work and doing like a job well done and sort of the deep satisfaction people get from 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 doing a good job. But a lot of the tension in that show comes from will we get the permit? Will we get the permit from this deal? You know, bureau, Chicago corrupt bureaucracy labyrinth. Will we get the permit, you know, you know, to uh, to to open this restaurant? Uh, to me, like that's a really, it's not a story of technology, but it is a story of progress and a story of the barriers we put up uh, to progress. I think that's a great story. And I would like to see more people grab on uh, to those kinds of stories. Uh, I think. Right, right. Yeah. The, the allure, I don't know, at least to like young men, right, is that kind of, you know, almost that kind of spirit of conquest, right? Of course, you're not fighting any kind of physical war, but there is that element of, you know, will you achieve something great? Uh, which I, you know, I completely great, agree. Greatness that's is great, in the, very in the details. Greatness can be like really in the, in the details, like, you know, uh, you know, whether or not that store is going to be, whether that, uh, you know, beef restaurant is going to become wildly successful. Like they're going to do a good job on that day of serving those customers and that, and, and that, and, and, and the economist Deirdre McCloskey writes a lot about this. Like that is to be able to really serve a customer. You need to like think about them. You need to think about their needs, what they desire. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a kind of love and compassion that you really need to have to get inside someone's head. I mean, that is, that is a, to me, that is pro-progress. That is a pro-capitalism, uh, pro-work the value of work kind of kind of story. Now, none of the reviews, the mainstream reviews, will focus, I think, on that. I mean, I've written a little bit about it, but that's what that is. I think more story. I mean, I think stories. I mean, there's a lot in, the, in my book. There's a lot of economics and studies, but you know, the story we tell ourselves uh, matter. I mean, that boy. If we had any doubt, Brian, if we had any doubt that was the case, you know, you know. It was like a year ago that we saw, you know, you know, this release of Chat GPT, and, you know, I, there are maybe a few news stories at the beginning about how neat it is and what it can do, and wow, you can create these images, and then it became job loss and AI doomer. They're going to kill us, and the touchstone every story in every news story was a story of fiction, the Terminator, the power of that film to to you know influence how we think about this technology you know just imagine if there was a film as popular as the terminator but told a different story about robots and ai and that was the touch that was sort of the cultural touchstone you know maybe we would be a little more positive rather than having these polls showing like 80 percent of us are terrified of chat gpt yeah i mean this is one of the things that make me like 
I'll be I'll be open about this. You know, I've talked about this on other episodes. I am sympathetic to the teal line about democracy. Like, you know, you have you have all of these voters whose position on AI, you know, depend on the Terminator. It's like, what are what are they going to tell me next? That you know, our foreign policy should be like killing that Thanos guy. Like, like it's absurd. It, 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 it's absurd. You know, it's 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 at, you know, I, I made up this term ad cinema. You know, argument by fiction, <laughs> and. It is, it's like a very, you know, it's, it's a very, on hearing it, you know, sounds crazy, but is just verifiably true that a majority of the population form their ideas, their beliefs on what is arguably the most important issue on our time based on a work of literal fiction, you know, you know, talking about misinformation, like that's the greatest no, it's not pretending to be anything else, and yet people are making policy decisions. People are changing how they vote based off of it, right? I think, and it's my, and I mean, this is not the only reason I'm positive, but I think as the distance between reality and the world that is being depicted in films grows, I hope that is a catalyst for a different kind of film. Uh, and, to, you know, one way, you know, I think that manifests is, you know, I, you know the uh, on Apple Plus, there is this like star studded big budget miniseries. You know, it was a single season series called Extrapolations uh, by uh, Steven Soderbergh. who did Contagion. And this was supposed to be a real sort of hard science based on, you know, empiricism kind of drama about climate change. Uh and if you watch all the episodes, which I, I did, um, it was a series that ended with uh, not civilizational collapse, but things got pretty bad. Uh, all the CEOs all got put on trial for war crimes, and the and 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 the possibility of nuclear forget you know forget nuclear fusion or, or small modular reactors, but just any kind of nuclear, just just didn't fit into the story. So that was the world to me to, to watch that and then be able to hear about a nuclear fusion breakthrough and then to hear about these countries around the world re-embracing nuclear power and, and listening to environmentalists say, you know what? Yeah, maybe AI might help us with this, discovering amazing new drugs and new materials, but it just uses too much power. You know, I, I, I think I think someone hearing that message and then being told that climate change is bad, but we can't use nuclear. I just think sort of that contradiction will become more and more stark. And those movies, I don't know how many people watch extrapolations, will just seem, I think, nonsensical. And there will be a market for a different kind of vision of of films that show problems, but also show that we can fix those problems. I mean, they are, have been made and they, and people like them. People like Interstellar. They like the Martian. Uh, I think, you know, there is a market and if there's a market for those kinds of movies, those movies, and I think movies are super important still and fiction, super important. Those movies will get made because they, they will have a, 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 a reality at their core. And the reality is we are building new tools to make the world better. Uh, so I think that's, I think if you're looking for a reason for optimism, I think 
you know, I think re- reality right now has a pro progress bias. Right. I mean, this is how I've been thinking about it lately is that, you know, you kind of want to be doing a bit of preaching to the choir if you're, you know, a kind of pro tech progress uh, writer or, uh, or, you know, a filmmaker or anything like that, media creator, uh, because, you know, it might still be a minority of the population, but, you know, it's, it's the people who, who will matter. You know, it's the people who will be creating these things who you who you care about most, you know, not being deterred, not being, you know, not losing hope like those people matter, even if it's not it's not everyone. Right. Even if it's a message that will be limited because of negativity bias, you know, not everyone's going to be receptive of it, but it matters. Um, Can I I just jump in that? Yeah, go ahead. Like the like reality matters. Like I said, I think reality is having a more and more of a pro-progress bias. You know, there's a, uh, um, one of my favorite singers is a singer called, uh, is a singer, Regina Spector. And she has a song called uh, like laughing with God. And she says, no one laughs at God in a hospital. Uh, and, and my twist on that is no one laughs at technology in a hospital. When you when you when you are when you have a terrible disease or you're or, or somebody has cancer, you're not going to laugh at progress. Then the progress which may be keeping your loved one alive and providing the medicine that will bail them out. And these and I think these medicines and these cures will become more common. My gosh, uh, you know, looks like a Zempic not only helps us lose weight, but may have, may have a variety of other very positive side effects, like actual tangible project uh, progress will help no one's gonna no one is going to laugh at progress when um when you know ai is creating you know great new treatments when we will have breakthroughs that provide abundant clean power so i think what we what is actually achieved by our scientists and technologists are really really important and i think will help provide a a tailwind uh, in a way that sort of other really interesting technologies have been very profitable uh, over the past decade or so have not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Andreessen said on this podcast that he thinks, you know, the AI regulation fight will be over one way or another in like four years, right? That either, you know, everyone's going to be, either it's going to be banned or everyone's going to be using ChatGPT. You know, everyone's going to be using some version of a language model. And there's no banning in at that point. You know, the constituency is there. Everyone's going to, you know, all the voters are going to oppose it, even if the politicians, you know, still still want to still want to do that. And, you know, I think he's right. I think that once those constituencies form, you know, once they're once you have widespread adoption, then the 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 kind of calculus around it, the, the kind of thinking about it, once it becomes something tangible, uh, like you say, uh, then it's different. I, yeah. I think, right. I, I mean, I think I think you're right. Listen, I've been following, you know, again, I'm in Washington, D.C. I've been following these sort of fight against the online platforms. I guess now it is getting close to a decade. I and and like like they're still here. Right. And the fight to break up big tech, big tech is still big. And this and why is that one? Uh, I think you have you have you've had a tremendous lack of sort of technological competence 
in Washington, D.C. I think you've had an ability to move quickly, uh, to regulate industries that move quickly. And the fact that people like it, they like Amazon. You know what? You, you know, I, if, if you never get off Twitter, maybe you think that people, you know, that you know, Jeff Bezos is a figure of mockery and it's all people you know, the workers in the, uh, you know, various, you know, you know, you know, warehouses are, you know, these are terrible jobs and all that. People love Amazon. They love getting things quickly. People need to get off social media and look around sometimes. Uh, you know, Amazon's not getting broken up. Google's not getting, these are valuable things and their usefulness to people that, you know, that is a, a sort of a transcendent fact. Uh, and if I if I only have to go on the effort over the past decade to regulate and break up these companies, that gives me a lot of confidence that we are not going to uh, end up in a, uh, a, 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 a an AI less world. Oh, and by the way, um, we can also point to our geopolitical rival, uh, which is which will also be pushing hard against AI, even if we somehow somehow insanely decide not to. Uh, I think. I, I I just don't see that happening. Yeah, you mean China here, right? I do think uh, it's a powerful art. I mean, it's a tail. I mean, you know, my guy. I hope we don't have a war with China. But the 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 concern and the threat of China is a is a powerful argument for progress. I who do you want to be on the technological frontier? You know, simple question. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be the world's technological leader? Them, yeah, I'm so pro American. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, what, what kind of what kind of world do they want to create? And listen, that world looks like a bummer, right? It looks like a world, a surveillance society where they crack down on anything people find to be, be fun. It's, I mean, the, the I don't, I don't want to live in that world. I mean, give me a break. Give me a break. I think that's a and people are like, oh, that's a cheap argument. Well, no, it's really it's it. You know, I think it's a valid argument and it's an effective argument and it's worked before in the space race. And I think this is even more important because you know I think ultimately you know winning the AI race, whatever that means to win, but making sure the U.S. is a technological leader has a far bigger importance perhaps than than even the space race. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean. In terms of, I mean, this is one of the the things that I worry about. I have an article in the works called, you know, uh, "Precedented AI Risks," which argues, you know, I am I am skeptical of, you know, the the AI arguments of like, oh, this will cause literally the extinction of humanity. But you know, so, something like, oh, it will create it will create uh, viruses that can also talk to people that can do very elementary, you know, psychological manipulation. Just the thing that, you know, kind of scammers do regularly today, right? That human scammers do regularly today. Yeah, if you have a combination of that and the computer virus, can it be much worse? You know, there are things that people need to solve. There are, you know, but as you say, as you say, you know, technology introduces some problems, but technology uh, also solves them, right? You, you invent something else. You invent better filters for for the scam bots, you invent better um, antivirus. You know, there, there I, I do think there is sort of like a, there is a cybersecurity reckoning that needs to happen. Um, there, there is a kind of technological jump that people need to make there. But, you know, people are going to need to make it eventually, you know. What, what, what is, what, really, what is fundamentally the alternative here? Is the alternative 
uh, stasis, retreat, telling people uh, in the rest of the world that this world can get no richer, it cannot move forward, that if you're poor, you will always be poor, uh, unless, all, unless rich people decide to give you uh, all their stuff. I mean, Right, so so, so me, someone to like me, that's uh, a fantasy. To me, that is, that is as much a fantasy as some of these AI doom projections. The fact that there really is like another path we can take over the long long run without creating an absolutely hellscape of a world. Um, and I don't fundamentally take it seriously as I think preventing progress. I worry about delays. We certainly we certainly see that progress can be delayed. We certainly see progress in nuclear energy or supersonic flight or can, basically canceling the manned space program. We see progress can be delayed, but I don't think, and that's very costly, but I don't think it can be denied. And the only way it's going to be super costly is if the day should come where we need those tools and we don't have them because of because of some existential threat, a virus far beyond anything we've imagined, a a, a comet headed toward Earth. Well, then I guess it would be too late. Yeah, I think that you know some, someone like Shvi Moshewitz, uh, friend of the show, uh, who who is worried about AI risk, would say that the the grand bargain needs to be you know deregulation of all other areas and you know. Uh, regulation of AI, right? The, he he wrote this article called uh, "The Dial of Progress," where he he says that many people like Mark Andreessen or like Tyler Cowen uh, basically believe that if you if you regulate AI, then you'll have uh, the same or more regulation on everything else. And he says, you know, like this is a solvable problem. We need to like deregulate drug development. We need to deregulate nuclear energy. But like it's ju- it, it's just AI that we need to focus on and. Uh, Yes, so I do think there are people who are more moderate on this, but well, well, you know, well, I mean, listen, I mean, both. By the way, I, I received very nice uh, endorsement blurbs from both Mark Andreessen and, and Tyler uh, on the book, and you know, my fear is that people, you know, who is who really are really interested in regulating AI, view it as. You know, maybe agree agree that this is a powerful general purpose technology. And if you're able to get a, a, a regulatory handle, a deep regulatory imprint on this technology, you are, in fact, going to be regulating the entire American economy. So if this is as powerful as I think it is, and I think what you think it is, to, to put it under the, the boot of the you know, federal AI regulatory agency, you are effectively going to be regulating the entire economy. I think it, listen, to me, we are, to me, I mean, we've talked a couple of times about the nineties. I, I think it is a fool's errand to try to end up regulate, heavily regulating a brand new fast moving technology. Uh, we didn't do it with the internet. And if we had, we wouldn't even have the AI today because while some people think, oh, the internet, all it's done is it's a distraction machine. It's created misinformation. Would we, ha- would we have, you know, large language models today, you know, without the internet, without making researchers more efficient, being able to communicate with each other, being able to do research more efficient. None of it would even be possible. I mean, I don't think any of these technologies that we've talked about would be possible without the internet. They wouldn't be, we wouldn't already have them. Uh, So I think if people are looking for, you know, an example, I think the nineties provide a great example of, of sort of the light regulatory 
uh, approach. And I think for what I said earlier, I, I, I think the heavy regulation, there'll be a lot of conversation in Washington about it. I don't think, I don't think ultimately uh, we'll be able to pull that off. Thank goodness. Yeah. I, I, the question that I have is that, you know, what, what has been the kind of, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word, like realignment on technology, right? You, you talk about, you know, you talk about in your book, uh, upwingers and downwingers, right? Basically people, uh, upwingers are the people who support technological and economic progress. And then downwingers are, are, are the opposite, right? Um, actually, this is something that you talked about in a different podcast, but I want you to kind of repeat it for the uh, for the listeners. What what are the litmus tests you use for uh, upwingers versus downwingers? Well, I think if I can if I can sort of remember them off the top of my head, the lit I think the litmus I think one of the litmus tests is you know when you inequality. If you think about inequality as some people have more than others, well. And that's what really bothers you, then you're probably a downwinger. But if you view inequality as people being unable to reach their human potential and follow their dreams and make their dreams come true, and the real inequality is that people in some countries can do have much more opportunity to do that in other countries. If that's the kind of sort of inequality that worries you, uh, you you are you are pro, you are probably an upwinger. I mean, to me that that that's just a very different view. Uh, if you view space as uh, as a waste of resources that we could be focused on Earth and what are we going to do up there? And unless you tell me exactly the use case, uh, we shouldn't do it. That is an unbelievable downwing attitude. Where for me, uh, you know. Not knowing exactly what we can do by having an orbital economy, that's fine. Uh, most technologies, we don't know right away all the use cases. And if you're willing to sort of take that leap, uh, then you're probably an upwinger. Right. Yeah. So, so relating to the realignment issue, what kind of cross, uh, you know, the, the book is called The Conservative Futurist, but... To me, like there, there's going to be a lot of people who would call themselves left wing people, like you know Matt Iglesias, who might be supportive of your vision, right? Or maybe not Matt Iglesias specifically; he's kind of an AI doomer. But maybe like uh, maybe like Ezra Klein, who might be more supportive of your. Uh, I, I know he's supportive of you know Yimby, uh, yes, in my backyard, building more housing. You know, he's a bit supportive of nuclear energy. Certainly, very supportive of solar, right? This kind of like pro progress, um, pro pro economic progress uh liberalism or kind of leftism uh ha have you seen many allies on that front uh well there's uh there's Ezra Klein and Derek Thompson so we're building we're bu we're building from two people uh i i'm not i'm not sure how much it, it exists outside the uh you know 202 area code left of uh left center of punditry but right I, right you know but uh listen i think the very online men north right, of Russia. Right, right, right. But listen, <laughs> I think we have somebody like Jennifer Granholm, energy secretary, um, seem genuinely thrilled <laughs> about advances in nuclear energy and, and nuclear fusion. Um, I think there is a sort of real 
sort of I, I, you know, supply side progressive, uh, uh, you know, abundance progressive, abundance Democrat. I think there is, I think that exists. And I think it exists because, again, facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that if you, if you believe that climate change is going to be a big problem and we need to change how we generate energy in this country and other countries, the inability to do any of that on any kind of cost-effective or time-effective basis means you can't do that. So if that's what you care about, if what you... So if you view climate change, for instance, uh, I think this is a good example. If you view climate change as a clean energy problem, the inability to, to generate enough of that in a cost-effective economic way, uh, there are people on the left who now realize that that is an actual thing. And they and there are there are problems with regulation today. Maybe they are all for, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act. They would have been for it in 1970. But now they realize that all these regulations are preventing progress. I think that's a real phenomenon. And those people, I think, now understand that the prop that we have a clean energy production problem. But there are also people who, and again, using the climate change as an example, don't view it as a clean energy production problem. They view it as a consumerism, capitalism problem. And they think that is that is the problem. That So anything that enables, you know, uh, capitalism uh, is bad. And they and they are not going to they are not going to be for creating nuclear or nuclear, you know, small modular or fusion or deep geothermal. They're going to continue to look at that these barriers to clean energy production are really barriers to capitalism. And that's just fine. So I, I certainly think there are lots of folks like that uh, on the left. Uh, I am somewhat listen, I, I, I love I love the fact that you have sort of the um, the yes in my backyard and yes to nuclear. I think that's great. And I think, I, again, I don't know how big that group is. Um, probably bigger than maybe I, I, I realize it is, but it forms the basis. I think it forms the basis of like a governing kind of, of, of coalition. I think you can still be a, what I call an upwinger. You can be, you can still call yourself a good Democrat, a good Republican, or you can, you can be both. But I think an agreement uh, about these kinds of issues forms a basis where you can get things done and reach and reach compromises. So I am I, to me that is if I was, again that to me is a tailwind. Um, that you know I'm listen I'm never gonna get, I'm not gonna get Ezra Klein I think or Derek Thompson uh, to to admit that we've been making mistakes for 50 years. Uh, and you know, it, it just, and the cost of that lack of progress has not been worth it. Great. I'm never, they're never going to maybe agree to that. And that's a useless conversation. So where are we right now? Where are we right now? Um, that we need to make changes for, for, to do any of these things, to create a society, which is richer and fairer and where the economy is better, better able to make people's dreams into reality. So I think, yeah, so I think to me, that is that that is a that is a tailwind, and it's not just a way of sort of reframing, you know, President Biden's economic policies. I think it's an actual recognition. Right. Yeah. I, I certainly see. I mean, here's where 
you know, people will often say, you know, like the U.S. is a republic, not a democracy. But but here here's where you know it actually matters. Um, I have some familiar. You you probably have much more familiarity with me, but I have some familiarity with like the lawmaking process and you know the power of committees. And to me, you know, um, the fact that you have this uneven power, that you have uneven power uh, directed towards basically you know staffers or people who are basically just people who care a lot about a specific issue. You know, in some cases it can be negative with stuff like NEPA, but in some cases it can be positive. I think that, you know, the the kind of Yimby coalition, the kind of like, uh, you know, uh, left-wingers who believe in basic economics are are really like overrepresented in kind of, you know, either uh, congressional staff or, or even in the Biden admin. Right. So, so there is like a sense of optimism there where, where even if there's not as many voters, it's, it's like, you know, three cheers for elitism, even if there's not as many voters who might be supportive of a kind of, you know, um, left realignment towards, you know, like the kind of Ezra Klein, um, Yimby or pro-energy uh, progressivism. There's more of it in the kind of the more of it translates to law than uh, exists in the general population. And, and to me, that's something to be very optimistic about. Right. I mean, people, I mean, generally people want to think like that what they're doing is the smart thing that is actually the right thing. Now we can all talk ourselves into you know doing whatever we want, maybe in the end, but you know, I, people do not want to like be presented you know, people in D.C. be presented with like obvious facts and then do the opposite. I mean, people are pers- people are persuadable. And, you know, and we've all gone. Th- and and when you pick up the front page and and you realize that, you know, we had vaccines that saved millions of lives that not being able to generate clean energy is bad geopolitically. It's bad for the climate. Like that's. Like those are real facts that are very difficult to explain away. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think there's still enough of a reality basis to how we make decisions in this country and how people think that I, that, that does make me positive about the future. And there's also sort of this deep, there's still a deep and powerful American myth about who we are and that we are pioneers, explorers, we solve problems. Listen, when someone runs, runs for president, um, Democrat or or Republican, you know, they're going to run these very uplifting ads about everything America has accomplished, you know, moving west, you know, uh, Jesse Owens at the Olympics, winning World War II, the Apollo program. It's it's you know, those images are it doesn't matter if they're left or right, Democrat, Republican. You see those images. And what they're saying is we were great. We did things. We can do the big we can do big things again. We can do great things again. And uh, the fact that most of those TV ads, you know, it seems like we haven't done anything great since Apollo, uh, you know, I think is, is fairly glaring. So I think people really do want to think of America as a country that can do amazing things. And President Biden says this, you know, that, you know, we're, you know, he's like saying we're America after all. Like that's like you don't need more explanation. And that is something I, you know, Donald Trump would say too. Like we're America, we can do great things. Um, so I think that that deep American myth still still resonates and also makes me hopeful for the future. Yeah, 
What do you think of what uh, Rishi Sunak is doing? He he's kind of leaning into that same kind of pride. Uh, of of course, in the UK, right? But he he wants to make you know he said you, we want to make the UK the kind of AI capital of the world. You know he he's encouraging or like he's implementing visas for that. He and of course he has like the the, the kind of narrative surrounding it. Um, to, to me, I'm optimistic about it, but do you think you know? Do, do you think there's much chance of succeeding? Well, uh, uh, he's a he, he he is a proud faster please reader. Uh, <laughs> oh, amazing! Yeah. yeah, he has publicly said that, that he reads it, which is uh, fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think yes. Listen, I think I, I I think listen. I work at a think tank. I think like our decisions matter. I think policy matters i think you know different policies will create different results and you know one of the again one of the futurists i talk about a lot in the book who really inspired me uh this is guy herman khan um and you know loved he's a big he 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 would call it techno capitalism and he said that you know in the end you know as you know as long as we're not really stupid and we get a little bit of good luck, like we'll probably be okay. Um, now he may have underestimated our capacity for making bad decisions. But we <laughs> can make good decisions, and those decisions matter. Like you know, uh, I, I'm not going to give like a five point economic agenda for Great Britain, but I think it really matters, at least for the United States. Like, do do smart, very you know, uh, ambitious people want to come here? That matters. That matters. And they can come here and do great things. Uh, one of the, you know, I, uh, and I heard Elon Musk say this in person that, you know, if you want to do great things in your life, there's no better place to go than the United States of America. Like that matters that your country can attract talent uh, and d- different kinds of talent, certainly, you know, STEM, you know, talent, but also the kind of talent, the inner stick-to-ness and drive that kind of talent. Uh, I think that, I think that really matters a right, lot. right. The entrepreneurial talent, right? This is yes, what I think. Yes, and, and it doesn't have to be to build Google. It can be a. It can be like talent to have a thriving, you know, restaurant that you know allows you to support your family and provides a different kind of food for your neighborhood and pays for your kids' education. That those people are entrepreneurs, and that's valuable too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know th- that kind of like. Micro entrepreneurship. I mean, like maybe they don't think of it as micro entrepreneurship, but like small business, right? That's you know everyone thinks of it like that. Yeah, that, that kind of like small business in the online era, whether it's you know making stuff on Etsy or uh, whether it's you know whether it's stuff with AI, whether it's stuff with image generation or stuff like that. I think that that's going to be you know that's going to be a new constituency. That's going to be you know a lot of people, both who individually matter, whose you know direct contributions matter. But who also, you know, like if you know someone who's, you know, who's, whose livelihood depends on using uh, Midjourney, right? Or whose livelihood depends on using uh, Eleven Labs or, or, or all these like different, you know, AI tools, you know, that's going to be something that matters uh, when, when it comes to the ballot box. That's going to be something that matters when it comes to donations and so on, right? So the, the, the constituency is self-forming. It's created, you know, it's emerging. It's going to be here you know, in a few years, but, you know, now, now it's sort of the time that matters where you can see it happening in a few years, if nothing, you know, if nothing stops us, but 
you still have to hope. You still have to hope that it's going to actually get there. I, just think the level of like po- popular culture demonization of of billionaires, uh, concern about wealth inequality, concern about income inequality, demonization of Wall Street, particularly after the global financial crisis, uh, and all the people calling for you know wealth taxes and you know you know, much higher capital gains taxes, stuff that hasn't really happened. And the reason it hasn't happened isn't just because uh, all the, you know, the all the lobbying, you know, and corrupt washing, it also hasn't happened because we have a massive investor class of people in this country who have 401ks. Like, I know that doesn't like factor in to people, you know, who talk about we need to really tax wealth, but people do that matters. Like we're not just workers. We're also, many of us are also investors. And that's something we have to think about. Uh, and all of us aren't just going to be people whose jobs have changed uh, due to AI. We're also going to be people whose you know jobs have gotten different and maybe made us more productive. And we're going to have higher wages due to AI. Or maybe we're going to be investing in AI companies and have much bigger 401ks. The world is far more complicated with these sorts of sorts of crossover micro constituencies that end up being not so micro that never factor in to sort of the simplistic, you know, uh, calls for banning this, you know, re- you know, retreating that, taxing this. It is, it is really a warped view of how complicated and nuanced all our lives and our positions in our lives are. Yeah, I think that what's really interesting is I think that the pandemic had like two very diverging reactions uh, between generations of, you know, people who I would consider conservatives. I think that for people around, you know, for for like Zoomers, for Zoomers and like maybe early younger millennials, it's more something like, uh, you know, it's more something like a revitalization of libertarianism, or at least of libertarian principles, right? Whereas for millennials and Xers, it's sort of like a skepticism of libertarianism. Here, I'm talking about you know people who care about politics, people within the kind of you know like broadly conservative coalition. I, I think I see like a lot of people reacting to. Um, so, so there's like two stories, right? One is the sort of uh, kind of uh, Trump story or the kind of Ron DeSantis story, which is, you know, you, you had the libertarian establishment and, you know, what did they accomplish during the pandemic? They, they didn't stop our, you know, they, they didn't stop our rights from being infringed. And uh, the, there's the kind of younger, younger story. Uh, what I hear more from people who would call themselves conservatives around my age, which is something like, um, well, just just look at, you know, they're, they're much more, first of all, they're much more pro-vaccine, but they're like, look, you know, cap- you know, capitalism solved the problem, you know, capitalism and, you know, individual ingenuity, you know, we didn't ban the coronavirus, we invented vaccines, right? That, that, that's the kind of story that younger <laughs> people tell, you know? That's great. Uh, like like the, the NPIs didn't work, the pharmaceuticals, whether it's the vaccines or va- whether it's Paxlovid, you know, those worked. Um, we so, so like the, the right. question, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the question is like, where do you see 
libertarian influence in policy going? You know, for, first of all, you know, for for my listeners, where what what's your assessment of what's changed in you know the past? It's been seven years. The past seven years, you know, uh, since, since the kind of Trump era, and where do you see it going? You know, like, with, if we're right that we're going to see this kind of tech resurgence, the, the, this optimism about AI, like, how, how does that change? How does that reform the political coalitions within DC? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think. You know, the the greatest losing bet is to bet on like, you know, a third party and there's going to be like this upwing party. Uh, I think, you know, it's far more likely we have a Democrat Republican party. And I think the tailwinds identify in the book make it somewhat more begin to make it more. Well, maybe I hope much more likely that there will be broad, broader problem solving coalitions that actually want to do things to make America the undis- the keep it and extend its position as the world's undisputed technological leader like that is a message that carries well on both sides of the aisle uh no one wants the ex- the example i give is what if in november 2022 that it was tencent or alibaba or some other chinese company that released uh, I guess Ernie or whatever they're calling their chat GPTs over there, their large language models, they had they had leapt forward and we were two or three or how many years behind. It would have been a Sputnik moment. And if everyone's tired of hearing about AI right now, we would be hearing a lot more about it if we thought that we had not only lost like this AI race and the economic impact, but also the national security impact. We would be in a panic. And that alt history scenario is one uh, I think like I would make that very clear to people in Congress, like, thank goodness, let's make sure that never happens. So I think that I think the pandemic showing uh, the advantages of being a rich, fair, well-governed enough, uh, technologically advanced country, like the advantage that you uh, that you can solve a that you can actually solve a problem in record time. I, to me, that is a powerful example. And I cannot sit here and I don't know what's going to happen with the next election or uh, you know or you know the the sort of the populist moment on the right. There, those voters are there. Those politicians are there. But I think these sorts of, again, I call them tailwinds of the power of economic growth to make us more secure, the power of economic growth to help us deal with problems that we currently have no agreement on, like entire, you know, Social Security and Medicare, how far more rapid growth takes those problems off the table. To me, those are issues just waiting to be grabbed, and I and I and I, and I and I and I think these tailwinds will be powerful enough. I I think to make that happen, uh, so that there will be these coalitions. You know, the, the the worst mistake anyone can make is merely to extend the present and the future, and to say that Washington is always going to look like it is is obviously not true, since it doesn't look today like it did seven years ago. And I don't, and I and I think the best bet would say it's not going to look like this seven years from now especially if the technologies we've talked about turn out to be as important. 
if we just make enough right decisions or make few enough bad decisions that we will have a different macroeconomic environment, a different technological environment, and it'll be much easier to be an upwing politician, whether or not, you know, you're a donkey or an elephant. Right. Yeah, I do. I mean, there's kind of two, the the biggest skepticism I have of this is like, Right, should be skeptical. You should work? be skeptical. I mean, if I was to look around right now, I mean, a skeptic, you'd be a little bit crazy not to be skeptical. Yeah. Why didn't this work with vaccines? I think that like, I think, we, we yeah. had, you know, the biggest development in mRNA vaccines, you know, the biggest development in vaccines in, you know, more than a decade. And people, you know, made up all sorts of reasons to hate it. Yeah, I think... I, I, my hope is that like the sheer, I think the sheer number of technologies and the sheer magnitude of their impact will cause a reevaluation of vaccines as well. I mean, we are still sort of in the moment uh, with, with vaccines, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, in 2030, seven years from now, people will think about these vaccines differently and they will see them as, as part of a, I think a moment where we began to again, view technology as a problem solver, because there will be other examples of technology. Listen, when, when, when these, when biotechnology is not just going to, uh, you know, help you survive the coronavirus, but, but bring your, bring your parent who is 65 years old with Alzheimer's, when they can bring that parent back, who would not give their parent that vaccine? Good luck. I think, I don't think you're, you know, anyone who's seen a parent in that kind of uh, position, I don't think you're going to see too many vaccine, Alzheimer's vaccine deniers. So I think when that's the case, when, you know, when, you know, you may have been a COVID, you know, uh, vaccine, anti-COVID vaccine person. But when now you have a new vaccine that may like allow you to cure the uh, childhood cancer. I don't think you're, I, I, I don't, I think the anti-vax uh, sentiment will really be limited to really the few crazies out there. So I think, I think progress has its own momentum and will create its own, I think, powerful powerful pro-progress logic yeah yeah the effect size just needs to be big enough right it needs to be so big that you can see it you know directly no no uh, no, no one laughs at, no one laughs at technologists or biotechnologists in a hospital that's you know and they and they i think they certainly won't in the future right the other big question with regards to this is you know surrounding the kind of risk aversion the kind of negativity that people have uh, what relation do you think parenting has to do with any of it? I think that you see a lot of generational differences around this. Uh, I think uh, Jean Twenge's book, uh, iGen, and I think she had, she had a new book, although I didn't, I haven't read the new book. Uh, where I th- where I've heard her talk about it though, and where she says she talks about these same um, the, these trends persisting of uh, higher rates of anxiety of more. Uh, negativity, higher neuroticism among younger generations. Uh, 
first of all, do you see that? And second of all, if you do, do you see that as, you know, as a big problem for technology in yeah. the future? Yeah, listen, I, I, and I, I think there was like a brand new study, you know, looking at that, looking that at very issue. And maybe that's partially what you're uh, referring to. Um, yeah, I, again, I would like to think that as a parent, you know, and I'm a parent of seven, like I, I try to be very aware of like what the studies are saying and do those studies sort of correlate with my own uh, experience. And I, and I, and those kind of studies sort of do correlate with my own experience. So I, 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 perhaps the parents who are also most likely to like hover over their kids and try to keep them safe are also the kind of parents who also may be most susceptible to counter information who most might be most susceptible to like believing a new study if it's backed up that what they're doing is harmful. So I think that's exactly the kind of parent thing most likely to think to be persuaded. I mean, that's really my experience. Most likely to be persuaded that they need to approach their parent. I mean, styles of parenting change. They've changed before. They can change again. And it's probably helpful if we have more sorts of stable families with two parents. There's a great book out about the two parent privilege, uh, which is not a judgy book by any means, but just looks at the data that, you know, kids who come from two parent families have a, do just do a lot better. And the policy proposals are not great at this point. There's some, you know, you know, economic, like, you know, you know, tax proposals, but really we don't know how to do this yet. But if we can spend millions and millions and billions every year on making a better education system, having stronger families, which have huge impact. I'm going to be, you know, I'll give the economic term on the future of human capital. That's pretty important too. And some people aren't going to like that. They're not going to like that topic, but you know, like, I mean, like the economic core of my book is one way to think about it is that we are, uh, that we are, the economy is, is a, is, is a, is, is a computer. It's a computer of, it, it is a network of networks and those networks are, and sort of the nodes of that, and those networks are universities and businesses, but they're all made up by people. And so sort of the, sort of what, how we educate our people, the health of our people, the mental health of our people. And maybe, you know, you should be able to get, you know, government should be able to, you know, uh, subsidize, you know, marriage uh, marriage therapy for people. That's what that's what it takes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Andrew the, Andrew Yang said he wanted to do that, right? That yeah. might not be a crazy idea uh, at all. I mean, we'll. I mean, hopefully, we can figure it out. So, if we need, so having stronger families, and this is probably really the conservative part of the conservative futures. Like that's like that's that's super important because last year was the 50th anniversary of the film Soiling Green and spoilers, <laughs> 50 years, spoilers. The economy is, is, is the people economy is made out of, always made out of people, uh, <laughs> you and me. And if you yeah. get that part, right. I mean, you're, you're halfway home. Right. And, you know, thank you so much for having uh, seven children, you know, uh, from, from the pronatalist perspective. Oh, it's, it's, I, doing... I, 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 I've enjoyed it 51% of the time, sometimes 52%. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's another problem on the horizon though. Right. Uh, you know, declining, declining birth rates, not just in the U S but in the, in the whole world, uh, 
and that's you know that that's something that seems to be borne out by preference, right? That actually as uh, wealth increases, as people become more able to choose, have more opportunities to to kind of uh, prevent unwanted pregnancy. That's you know civilized like the current levels of population just become unsustainable, not from a resource perspective, but just from the fact that people are not willing to have as many, you know, people are not willing to have replacement rate levels of children. Right. I I would highly recommend, uh, and I, I think I, maybe I've written about it in my faster please newsletter. Um, I, I think I maybe even did a podcast with him. Um, uh, uh, there's a professor, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Fernandez at, um, at Penn. And, uh, I mean, his work on population shows that like the UN's getting it wrong and, and actually population, uh, you know, birth rates are falling faster, uh, in a lot of countries than what the UN believes. So it's like, so it's a real thing. And of course he also doesn't think there's a lot we can do for about to change that may slow it down, uh, from a policy uh, perspective. So that's, um, yeah, so that, that, that is a problem. That is, if you believe in economic growth and if it's made out of people and the more sort of healthy, smart people we have, you know, uh, doing research and building companies uh, and innovating, the better it is. So, that, so one, so that's an issue. And one ramification uh, of that issue is that if you're a country that can attract people and not every country can, uh, that is, that it really is a superpower to have and to be cherished. The fact that you can, people can come and they can feel welcome and they become, become part of sort of your national experiment. If you have that kind of country, do not screw that up. And that still is a great American superpower. And, you know, if I was going to put my, you know, us screwing that up, we could do that, you know, and that would be really, really bad because we're going to still want to be able to attract uh, those kinds of those those kinds of people. So having a country that can do that uh, is fantastic. But it also shows that making the people we do have more productive is really important and be able to have AI as a super research assistant and be able to leverage uh, the humans we do have uh, to become more productive, super, super important. Um, those two things go together, like being able, be, being able to attract talent and making sure they have the best possible tools while they're here. I mean, that is a pretty powerful formula for success. And, you know, one point of my book is to help raise, you know, raise the awareness here in Washington and hopefully elsewhere globally, uh, the power of that formula and other countries are going to try to like duplicate that formula. It's going to be pretty tough. Uh, you can go to France and you can be in France for a long time, but you're not a Frenchman. Do you come to America? Uh, you know, you take, you, you take the oath as a citizen. You're, it's, you're an American. Some people might not view it that way, but most of us still do. Welcome to America. Welcome to the new world. You are now, uh, you are now an American. So, that I think those are two pretty important factors, at least from like an American point of view of thinking about population decline. But of course, listen, we really don't know all the ramifications. Like this is a, this is a new thing uh, for many countries, for humanity. And uh, I'm sure there will be uh, problems that we don't anticipate. But again, I think being able to attract people and put them and put them to, to pro- productive work, 
it's pretty great. We can do that in the United States. Yeah, and I gamed this out with uh, Lyman Stone on this podcast. But there's a very real scenario in the future where the main direction of immigration restriction is not people coming in, but people leaving, right? Not wanting, you know, we've seen this at some points in the past as well, but people or like governments trying very hard to keep their population uh, within their country because, you know, they, they just don't have, they, they just don't have enough population. Uh, oh, I, I, I just interrupted running. that the, the economist I was talking about was Jesus Fernandez Villaverde. I just had a momentary uh, moment in my head there. But yeah. Uh, uh, so the audience, University of Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. All good. Yeah. For, for the audience, uh, I found that I will have it linked below uh, along with a lot of the other uh, resources that we've mentioned. So you can just you can just go to the podcast description yes. and you should be able to find uh, that interview uh, that Jim did with uh, Jesus Fernandez. Yeah. Um, right. Like to give. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of populists uh, who also listen to this podcast um, to, to give their populists their due, like, there is, there has been a very real, you know, cultural change, or like, I don't know, uh, let me know if you disagree, but, but <laughs> from my perspective, and, you know, certainly from their perspective, there has been a real cultural change, you know, there, there's been a change in, even with stuff that I think that you agree with, with the prioritization of, for example, the two-parent family, there's been, you know, that there's been a change in media, you know, in terms of whether that's whether that's preferred, they would argue that there's been a change in media promoting, you know, promoting single families or so on and so forth. And I mean, this is where I'm sympathetic to them. The kind of cultural change that I've seen has been, in my view, has been in a negative direction. Um, so, so first of all, like, do you agree with that uh, assertion? And second of all, do you think that, or or like? They would say that, you know, that's downstream of the kind of economic changes, that's downstream of, quote unquote, big tech or big business. So, first of all, do you think that such a cultural change has happened? Uh, and second of all, like, if you if you do think that it's happened, um, was it because of big tech? Well, no, listen, I think people... Uh... I think people's preferences change. So I, the bottom line is whatever people's preferences are today, you know, they can be different, like the kinds of families they want, you know, their preference about what they think about technology. Uh, people used to smoke a lot. They don't smoke as much anymore. People's preferences change. Cultures change. And, you know, you mentioned the two-parent family. I know that I, 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 uh, I, I did a podcast. I'm not sure it's out yet. With Melissa Carney, who wrote the book about two, the two parent privilege from the University of Maryland, and you know she is, and, and she fully understands the amount of negative feedback, and she's already gotten it. And there've been some really you know dumb op eds uh, written attacking her that people just don't, <laughs> many such cases. Yeah, people just don't want to hear that because they think you're being judgy again, and they don't. And, and you're saying that this family is better, and but you know what? Uh, are you know there but there's actual data about you know how how kids do how kids prosper in some families better than other kinds of families and uh you know and that and one reason and there are economic reasons why families change and she points out to them as far as what happened for a long period to you know uh you know male incomes for non-college graduates that's a factor uh she's a right. fantastic economist but you know what this is, but also the culture was sending a message too that it didn't matter. 
right? That it really didn't matter that kids would be fine no matter what. So that was a, that was a cultural message. Now that cultural message uh, can change, uh, and I, and I hope that, and it, it matters what you know people who are opinion leaders say. And I think you know it matters what if there's more studies that come out and support her, that will change. Uh, the thing that what we think today will always be the case. You know, I'm old enough to know that is certainly that that's that's not the case. That we were we lived in a period where people were so go you know gung ho. Uh, about markets, and we had the president of the United States, who's Democrats say the era of big government is over. Uh, you know, a, a, a Democratic president wouldn't say that today. A future Democratic president might say that again. We had a Republican Party, which seemed to be, you know, very gung ho about capitalism and growth, and then, then somewhat less so. It changed. It can change again. But that, and all those changes are, are going to be the results of, you know, I think, again, facts on the ground, what's actually happening in the world and the economy, but also what people who think differently say. And one way that social media is, is really important is that, you know, it's a forum for people who say other things to say them and to make arguments, uh, you know, without, with, with you know, the, to, to, to put a movie that they made with a pro-progress message and to get it out there. You can do that now. You couldn't do it. You couldn't make it, nor could you have distributed it, you know, d- decades ago. So I think that, yeah, so I think that culture can change. So I, 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 I realize that there is a natural tendency to think that, you know, all, you know, all forces are arrayed against us and it can't change, but it can. And if, and if, for instance, we start fig- the whole world starts renuclearizing, and America does it too, and we think like, "Hey, like, what were we doing for the past fifty years? Like, look at all the problems that we have because of you know." Sure, but our it's not going to change like the two parent family thing, right? Like, well, there I don't know how to change a two parent family thing. I think I think there's economic in, in the book. She talks about you know very you know economic, and there's you know marriage penalties and the tax code. I think that happens, but she even concedes that like. She doesn't have like a 10 point policy agenda that there that there needs to be research on how to strengthen families that we don't know. Maybe the answer is we can't, but we just don't know yet. But it's a it is an extraordinary worthy research endeavor. I mean, look at schools, look at schools. I mean, sure. Like we have I mean, we're still debating about like charter schools or the kinds of curriculum or the kinds of like, wait, like there's all this research. We have a whole department here at AI of education experts. And so does every other think tank. We should be spending at least as much time on figuring out how to strengthen families. Right. So so like the, the argument that conservative or like that populists would make is that they would say, you know, there's been all this technological growth, there's been all this economic growth in the past few decades. And yet some of these problems in in their view, right, the problems they care about the most have gotten worse, right? You've gotten you've gotten more uh, uh, single parent families, you've gotten much lower rates of marriage, you've gotten, um, you, you know, like, maybe let's focus on one specific topic, right? Do you, do you think like dating apps are a positive technology? Well, I've not used dating apps. Uh, Understandable, uh, but but, but um, uh, new, uh, good message for my wife. I have not used the uh, I have not used the dating apps. Um, I mean, I mean, there's a preference, right? I mean, what's the revealed preference of people? Are they sort of are people using them? They see people seem to be using them. They seem to be finding them valuable. Um, I you know will will those over the long run result in 
higher marriage rates because we can we can better match up with people. Um, I, I, I don't know. But the fact that people are using them and like them, that to me, that says something about them. And, and a lot of people who don't like them, I would imagine. And people who sort of don't like, it's like people who don't like certain types of architecture or people who don't like, um, you know, uh, I, I think single families, uh, parents or family, because I think there's a real economic impact there. But a lot of this is just preference. It's just like people's preference. And there are some people who have a personal uh, preference, aesthetic preference, who want to impose that on everybody else. Uh, and I think that I think that I, I think that is a I think that uh, that is a losing formula um, that I am against. And if someone wants to use a dating app and it's useful for them uh, because you have a preference for a, a, a kind of dating that was popular in the 1980s. Well, then don't use them. Right. I mean, that's the probably the more libertarian part. Like, don't use them. I, is there evidence? Are you, Brian, are you aware of evidence that we are that? We are getting a worse, uh, worse relationships, worse, uh, worse marriages because of dating apps. Uh, I'm not aware of that research. Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, as well as anyone does that, that kind of correlation is very hard to draw. Right. Like, sure. You could say, you know, let's I'm pretty sure definitely the you, let me you give see another, like a I, correlational me, pattern. Well, let me give you right? another example. But, but to, like, to like, make that like causal. Just like in the past, you know, in the past, you know, you can do a chart of like popularity of dating apps uh, over the years versus, you know, marriage rate, right? The marriage rate has been going down. Uh, this is just like video dating apps have been right. going up. You know, it's it sounds, very hard to draw a causal. It sounds to me just like people there. complaining about video games making men lazy. And and that's that's the cause of our problems. When when actually when they did like actual like real research that wasn't just like, you know, this kind of correlation, like, you know, uh, the market goes up uh, years when the American football conference wins the Super Bowl, uh, that, that, that total, that, that effect disappeared. Uh, again, I'm old enough to have, to have seen these kinds of scare campaigns about new technology, that video games are going to turn all our kids into homicidal killers. It's a very, and again, this is, it's all, it really is kind of a cognitive bias, how some people will only see the downside of a technology and closely related to that people will see a new technology and think like, I don't see how that would ever be useful. It's maybe a toy. Uh, I don't see how anyone would ever make money or how it would make us better. So we shouldn't have that technology. It's, it is a weird psychological bias uh, against change, uh, against new technologies, whether that new technology is a video game or the novel the, the novel, <laughs> which one time was a new technology, didn't like that either. Right. The printing press. There were wars right, fought right. over it. So a lot of this is just a personal preference uh, that people are trying to turn into a universal mandated uh, preference. Uh, you have a personal, listen, you have a personal preference that... Uh, that your wife doesn't work and she stays at home. That's fine. Uh, my, my wife was a stay at home mom like that. So that was our preference. I'm not going to like mandate that. I think there are plenty of families that choose differently that are perfectly fine. You know, th I don't think that's the, I mean, that's not the issue, is it? But some people try to turn their preferences into the issue and they have a preference for a certain type of neighborhood with maybe a certain type of skin color in that neighborhood. So they try to turn that preference into immigration policy. No, thanks. Right. So, so you have, I mean, I mean, that's like a very different 
topic there, but I, I do want to focus on the kind of uh, two parent family. I will like, say there's very okay, little about marriage in my book. <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but when we're talking about whether you know revealed preferences all are always right, I think it's you know I, I certainly think it's at least possible that people choose things that are bad for themselves in the long term, right? I, I mean, I think that that's you know you see people do that around you every day, right? Um, whether sure. that's you know whether that's like like I said you know we allow I, I want to be clear that I have right? much we allow more people to make bad decisions like but some people some people they feel so strongly about their preferences that they're not they're gonna not let other people make what they believe are bad decisions uh I that that and that 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 maybe creates a, a certain kind of you know political divide that I'm willing to let me, people make uh I mean I'm not so confident in my decisions. I'm going to necessarily impose them. I mean, the whole point of my book, I mean, the whole point of my book is not, is, is, is not to embrace that kind of overconfidence. Uh, I do, my book is not about like creating a department of the future where, you know, people are in a, 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 a room that looks like it's out of NORAD with big screens with charts and, you know, and, and they're planning like the future and how much, Money will go, will subsidize that industry and like what percent of urbanization we should have in the year 24. No, it's not, it's about, it's about creating ecology of giving people tools and opportunities to construct the lives that they want. And I think if enough of us do that, it'll probably be a pretty good future and certainly a better one than like the planners at the, at the department of the future would be able uh, would be able to create. So this is so. This is a very kind of organic, bottom-up vision of the future. And I, I, I don't know if that makes me that would make me not a futurist, a bad futurist, a futurist of a different decade. Uh, I'm certainly not the kind of you know, and I, I would never call myself a futurist uh, because I think that's about. I think oftentimes that's about people creating a set image of what that future has to be. And just like I'm not creating a set image of what that future has to be, I'm not going to create a set image of how other people should live their lives. Okay. I think that's understandable, <laughs> right? Like the, that that's an understandable kind of humility. That's very much my Oh, I love, I love humbleness and humility, yeah. Brian. You've got, a lot of, you've got to be humble. Got to be yeah. humble. The most humble genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm a humble. I'm, a, I'm the most humble genius. Spectacularly <laughs> humble. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, it's like you know, when I started this book, and I and I, I was complaining about, and you know, on, on you know, on social media, like, oh, there's not enough, you know, optimistic, you know, sci-fi, and people would point to this book called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, mm. and. Yeah, I know I'm like, oh, book. great, great! I, I can't wait. And that it was, I found it to be a terrifying book about people who do just the opposite, which is they have a vision of the future. Not only are they going to impose it, but but you know what? If if some people decide to use violence and compulsion, that's fine too. Uh, I did not find that to be a particularly like pro progress vision. I found it to be a terrifying vision, and that's certainly not what this book's about. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I, I don't really know how to approach this because it's sort of, yeah, I'll, I'll just talk about it from my perspective. Like, certainly, you know, like the populace and the audience will not be um, satisfied with this. But like, from my perspective, the main, like, 
there's always trade-offs to these things. And to me, like the current trade-offs that we're looking at, whether it's nuclear energy, whether it's vaccines, whether it's uh, certainly when it comes to AI, the benefit is much greater than the cost. Um, so, so from my perspective, right, um, you know, I, I'm sure you talk to, you know, there, there's certainly a populist coalition in like DC. You know, I, I'm sure you've talked to uh, many. And the thing, things that really come up when, when at least when I'm speaking with them and we're talking about these trade-offs is that, you know, I, I think that if you look at someone like Marshall McLuhan, if you look at, um, I, I think it's very hard to contest the idea that there are downstream consequences of technology on culture. And I agree that, you know, the, the kind of connection that they draw, you know, right away, the, the very strong connection that they draw between, you know, technological changes and cultural changes, um, that might not necessarily be causal. But there's a very, um, there's at least an intuition towards that. And when I'm talking with them, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to say, you know, here's the thing that I want to do, right? I want to say, you know, okay, let's break it down. Let's look at each technology one by one. You know, let's look at uh, solar energy. Is it really that bad? Does it really cause that much cultural change? And I prefer, you know, I prefer just to like, you know, um, something like dating apps. That's not my cup of tea. If they really want to, you know, if they, I, I don't use any dating apps, if they really want to, you know, ban dating apps, it's not a huge deal. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, ChatGPT, when it comes to language models, when it comes to solar, when it comes to nuclear, you know, you guys should at least let those go, right? You should at least let people people have as many of those as they want, right? But when, when I'm having these conversations, the main challenge tends to be, you know, this underlying... Uh, this underlying idea that the culture has gotten worse and you know you know like people often people actually kind of expect this unity this unity of whether they're like progressives or conservatives they tend to expect this like unity of goodness right that as <laughs> as, as as like some things get better you know as economic growth gets better, for example, that like everything is going to get better. The culture is going to get better. The family is going to get better. The birth rate is going to get better, you know, uh, but but that just doesn't happen. And, you know, many of them will say, OK, it, we've had all of these things that's, that have gotten worse. We have all of these things that, you know, they'll concede that, you know, they'll concede some things have gotten better. They'll concede that, you know, AI is uh, an interesting and useful technology. But they'll say something like, uh, well, I'd rather have a country where, you know, you had two, two parent families, you had much more two parent families, you had much uh, higher rates of marriage, uh, you had a much more kind of conservative culture, and so on and so forth. And that's their that's their cue to kind of oppose technological change or to oppose trade or to oppose uh, immigration. Like, what's I mean, what what kind of story can you tell? What kind of like counter counter narrative can you tell? Like, I, I'm not sure if you disagree that the culture has gotten worse, but like, what what I try to do is decouple these things, right? To say, you know, let's look at things one by one, right? Yeah. D yeah. Do you have any Do you have any tips for uh, doing that? What kind of approach not, do you have I, to I, I, to to this to this uh, well, to the story? I, I'm gonna look at it slightly different way so 
you know, it's the premise of my book that over the long run, um, uh, productivity growth raises living standards. And key to productivity growth is technological progress broadly construed. So what happens? So if you think that periods of, so periods where we have less of that kind of innovation driven productivity growth are less economically buoyant periods. Periods. So what do we know about those periods? And again, this is a, this is a value judgment. Um, it's a personal preference, but do you, do you like periods where, um, there is more concern for the poor. Do you like there is a periods where there is more concern, more tolerance for uh, racial differences, ethnic differences, and we can always find uh, other reasons to dislike people for all kinds of differences. So tolerance for difference, um, and also periods which which I think I like. I like democracy. I like having choice. I like having freedoms. Uh, are those good? Now, those kinds of periods where that stuff is embraced are periods where the economy is better. And over the long run, a better economy is driven by technology. So you could you could make the equation here that over the long run, technological growth results in a a a, a more tolerant, fairer, democratic world where people can live their lives free of fear and where they can create the kind of lives that they value. So that is, so that is a vision and that vision will have trade-offs. And the, the, the way I describe populism is a vision of politics that ignores constraints and trade-offs that you populist politicians will make big promises and never, they'll say, listen, we don't, listen, we, we can just spend and spend and don't worry about it. And in fact, you know, President Trump has said, said, I love debt. I love debt. Love it. Uh, well, you love it until you actually have to pay the bills. Um, so there's constraints and there's trade-offs. And the vision I gave, there are trade-offs. And maybe one of the trade-offs that we've seen is uh, the two-parent family. And I've said, like, now people recognize it. And maybe, maybe we can, uh, maybe there are things we can do both culturally and economically with policy to strengthen that kind of family. But the alternative world of stagnation, no technological, forget about like the inability to solve problems and cure, we'll set that aside. But a world of stagnation to me is a world of zero sum thinking of people fighting over the pie, of people being less tolerant. I don't want that world. So if these, so if these populists and, you know, want to go back to a world, I, I don't know what the motivations are or who they think would be running that world, who they think should be running that world. But uh, again, I'm going to take a pass on that world. Right, right. That's a very, that's a very good insight. I think that's, you know, like I, I think that you know, populist listeners will still be skeptical, but I'll put it like this: I kind of zero sum like thinking. Zero sum thinking. Zero sum thinking is a civilization killer. I think um, only seeing that you know uh, that 
growth only benefit. And that's that's on the left and the right, where growth only benefits some, uh, that it takes away from others, that, you know, all the billionaires are, again, are going to be living in their space stations uh, while we're on Earth. That, 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 that's a downwing thinking. Zero-sum thinking is very core to downwing thinking. Um, and, uh, you know, not to interrupt you, but I, I think that's a great point that that, that sort of zero sum thinking, um, is, uh, I, I really, I think creates, uh, creates a really ugly world. Um, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Like th- this goes back to the, to the teal point, which I think is his interpretation of Gerard that this amount of the economic growth is necessary to stave off, you know, many of the things that, you know, both we would consider. And that I think, you know, most uh, populists would consider to be, you know, like the politics of persecution and, um, you know, the, the, this kind of stuff that I think broadly conservatives can agree on uh, the, the, this kind of like destructive envious thinking that leads to, you know, that leads to civilizational collapse. I think you're right about that. I think that's no exaggeration. Um, that, that once you have this loop, you, you've seen this in many countries, you've seen this in Argentina, you know, Peronism, you've seen this with uh, Brazil in many ways, that once this kind of cycle of collapse and envy and zero-sum thinking begins, you know, like, the the one who stands who who stands over that will not be you know will not be conservative will not be Donald Trump will not be you know whoever uh, will not be Josh Hawley will not be whoever you want in power it will be someone far far worse than that you know no matter what party that person claims to be from well, listen it's a, 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 if you want a if you want a bit of old fashioned conservatism it's never never think it can't get worse because it can <laughs> yeah yeah. I mean that that's the kind of it, it, it's interesting, right? Because that's sort of um, th- that's pessimistic about the future, but th- th- there's a strange combination of thing, and and I say strange, although this is sort of my views of like it, it very much is the is a kind of like teal adjacent vision, right? Of of the idea that you know you need. You need economic development. You need technological development in order to outrun the kind of social forces of collapse and of, uh, you know, of restriction and of zero sum thinking, right? Like that's the kind of especially when so much of that is who we are, right? Especially when so much of that that seems to be hardwired into us, right? So we we need to fight even harder for progress. Right, exactly, exactly. Like th- this is always the, um, you know, this is always the distribution of, of thinking that the people who are going to be creating positive sum, um, you know, as, as he puts it, like zero to one things. That's going to be a very small number of people who are actually going to diverge from the consensus. But at the end of the day, that's what that's what matters, right? Right. We like, like you know, everybody obviously doesn't, you know have it in that everyone doesn't need to be an entrepreneur, have it in to be an entrepreneur. But are we, but what is possible is I think to create a society that has more appreciation of, of not just of entrepreneurs, but the need for risk-taking and entrepreneurship. And I, I you know, I, I, I think I reference. I, sometimes I forget what, what's in my newsletter, what's in the book, but 
you know, I have a uh, both an, an American Nobel laureate economist and a bunch of smart economists from Europe, both writing about sort of zero sum thinking and having a, what it means to have a zero sum society. And they both wonder, like, are we, you know, are we teaching that? Are, are we teaching that uh, in our schools? Mm. And, and, you know, and actually Herman Kahn, again, who, I, who was really a, the sort of, you know, a touchstone in my book, one of the last things he wrote uh, before, he, before he died in 1983 was the need to make sure, like, kids understood, like, what was actually happening in the world. If only they had an Our World and Data website back then. And are we... T- this seems like a simple thing, but like, you know, uh, are, are we are we giving them the kinds of stories and books uh, about exploration, uh, about, you know, should, kids should read The Martian. A kid should read The Martian, the, the book in school. I mean, it's a great movie. It's also a great book, uh, you know, which which teaches lots of great lessons about innovation and risk taking and how to solve problems and thinking your way and sciencing your way through problems and trying to, you know, keep calm uh, as, as you solve a problem. Like, I, th- I think that really matters. Are we only giving kids, listen, I'm all for making sure kids have a, like a realist, and speaking you know, about the United States, I'm all for kids having a realistic view of, of America warts and all that, but that's fine that they should know like what, you know, they should know what, happen and not just give it be get, being given a sanitized version of history but when you're just teaching them the warts and you're not teaching like the rest of it and nor have you are you showing them visions of people you know going out and exploring i don't think that helps to create a society that is going to that that is going to view entrepreneurship as something noble and important and will only view Elon Musk as as like he's exploiting labor or something. Um, you may not like everything Elon Musk does on Twitter or what have you, but yeah, you know, that I mean, like he's doing something pretty amazing. And I see people on Twitter when there's a when there's a um, you know a, a SpaceX launch SpaceX launch, they'll be like, oh, big deal, he launched a rocket. Then then you see other countries trying to do the same thing, and the rockets fail, and they can't do reusable rockets. Uh, I think I think it is possible to make sure that we don't have as much zero sum thinking. My gosh, every teacher should know about our world and data and be able to pull up a, a chart and say, "Look at this chart. You think you'd like to live in 1800? You wouldn't." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one one kind of anecdote that I think ties into this is like the reaction. I think there was like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure what this happened very early in the in the Ukraine Russia war. Uh, Elon enabled Starlink in most of Ukraine for free, uh, and then like later in the war, he like refused to enable it in some areas where we. I think like his his argument was something like, "Oh, we don't want to increase it, increase it in areas where um, it might be used to." Uh, launch attacks on Russian territory uh, or something like that. I don't want to be involved in something like that. Right. And the, just the disproportionate reaction from, you know, Elon 
enabling this for free right out of his own pocket you know it's not it's not free to for him to launch all of those satellites up there um to him saying you know like this is too far there was much more of a reaction to him saying you know this is too far whether you agree with that or not than than of him you know providing this service for, completely for free uh, at the very beginning and you see this you see this a lot of the time i think you see this a lot of the time where the the creation of a service or a creation of a good or or you know th- this kind of new action is just just overlooked and people don't really like people only you know react negatively once it's either taken away or it has some problem or it needs to be fixed or so on and so forth i do think yeah I, yeah no i think the, there's a lot of like taking there's a lot of taking like for granted and we took for granted for like a long time that like good stuff would just kind of happen. And it's sort of like our decisions. You know what? One of my favorite little anecdotes uh, in the book is about um, uh, the best-selling 1970 book, Future Shock by Alvin Toffler. And Mm. it was a book. uh, They even made a a fun little documentary with Orson Welles. That was a con and Toffler's whole thing. uh, You may have heard of the phrase future shock was that we would be future shocked. That 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 too too many things happen. Yeah, it's it's all happening. Yeah, it's all that growth would be so warp speed fast that was going to drive us all nuts. And he wrote that just as like you know growth sort of downshifted. And Wired Wired magazine asked him in 1990, like, hey, you know, how'd you miss that? And he said, well, I thought we had the economic growth problem licked, but I guess the economists lied to me. They got it wrong. Well. Yeah, there was the assumption that we had progress licked, that we that we could you know, fine tune the economy and and, it, and regulations really didn't matter and we'd be fine and good things will happen. Uh, they won't just, you know, we can screw things up. We can make bad decisions. And, you know, and, and, and certainly, you know, vilifying entrepreneurs because they don't neatly fit into our particular econ- you know, political, you know, uh, slot at the moment. I think, I mean, I do think that's really unhealthy and, um, to, and then to dismiss, you know, dismiss the accomplishments of Tesla and, 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 and SpaceX, I mean, the ability to bring down launch costs as it has and open and really open up the possibility of a true orbital economy, multi-planetary civilization, as Musk says, that's an amazing achievement. And like, to only view him as the guy who now codes right instead of co- coding left shows a, a profound lack of imagination in some people. Yeah, I think that a huge thing is that it's just kind of hard to conceptualize, you know, what Starlink means, right? Like most people in the U.S. still don't use Starlink. You know, certainly most people in the U.S. don't use uh, don't use SpaceX in general. I guess some people have Teslas and they're, you know, they they can still you know appreciate that it's a good car, uh, but like why like why isn't like SpaceX? That is massive, and that is a it's a. I think most people don't realize that it is much cheaper now, and will get cheaper still to get into orbit. There's companies planning multiple space platforms uh, that you know that creating permanent moon bases like we can do that it's an entire revolution that's just not being covered 
uh, unfortunately. Yeah, the revolution will not be televised. We would rather, because we would rather, given the amount, given how much, like, media coverage to that possibility versus, like, what Twitter Blue users are going to have to pay or or something. Um, It's... it's a it's a stri- it's a striking it's a striking. Yeah, in many gap. ways, the news cycle relies on um, the the news cycle is is driven by the incomprehensibility of what actually matters. Like most people, don't want to think about big picture technology in the same because it's just like it's not easy to think about, right? Like we shouldn't. Um, at least at least I think it's not true that they just you know. That, that if it were as easy, if it were as kind of like packaged as, you know, whatever the, it's like, it's like there's a kind of rationality. There, there's a kind of revealed preference in what, what the headlines are as well, right? The headlines are the way they are because, you know, be, because they are actually successful because they are able to get uh, clicks or subscriptions or so on and so forth, right? It's not like, it's not like it's operating in a vacuum. It's no, actually and, true. And, and, and people, for so long, like, I think I think we are just still like catching up as a society that there may have been like an actual change in like our prospects, our long term prospects, what tomorrow will look like uh, due to technological advances that have been sort of too long in coming. If listen, in the you know, you know, a lot of economists are still trying to figure out like. Um, are these how important these large language models are? How they affect employment? How they affect economic growth? But certainly, there are some forecasts ranging from you know Wall Street banks to technologists that are pretty pretty bullish. All right, and if they're right, then the, like the debate over again, I, I may have mentioned earlier, the debate over like being able to afford. Social Security and Medicare without radical changes in programs will look totally different if, if, if now all of a sudden we're going to be a, a four to five percent or more economy uh, for the rest of this century. So, like, it's going to be a long time before, like, our debate, I think, catches up to that. We haven't caught up to the fact that this still isn't uh, a time when, uh, you know, space is just too expensive, that, you know, nuclear must always be expensive. Uh, look, I mean, the impatience, like with CRISPR, which, which is all the that like, what, like where are all the miracle cures? Eighteen months after the Nobel Prize, no, it takes time, and and actually, we're actually seeing like real world advances in CRISPR that are happening really quite rapidly. Uh, I, I I just think there is a, a we have grown accustomed to uh, to to a, a very slow pace of change. And just can't even comprehend that that pace could be different. That it really might we might be entering a period where it seems like something's new is being invented every day. Yeah, I think that yeah. The, the last segment that I want to focus on. Yes, sir. I, I kind of asked a little bit about this earlier, and I'm not sure how much you can say about it. But what's the kind of you know upwinger strategy for what? What's the kind of upwinger legislative strategy? Right, like who, what kind of institutions, what kind of uh, parts of the lawmaking progress are you targeting for, um, or not you specifically, but, um, or or you can say you can talk about you specifically if that's easier as well. Are you targeting for a kind of 
uh, futurist vision, or or do you see other people targeting for a kind of futurist vision, right? Like if, if it if it's the case that you know something we can do, we can contribute to um, myself and the audience of this podcast can contribute to in terms of either you know donations or you know flying out to meet people. Um, who 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 holds the kind of keys to power? Uh, in your view, when it comes to making sure we get a kind of uh, making sure we get the future that that we could have. Yeah, I, listen, I think. I think being a voice, whether that voice is on social media or talking to your congressman or senator is very is important in my own source. Like, you know, today, you know, about an hour uh, after this podcast, uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be talking to some staffers uh, on the Senate side uh, about uh, about the impact of AI on jobs. And I'm going to go in that meeting, and I'm pretty sure that all those staffers will have heard nothing about, will, will have only heard that these the AI is going to wipe out jobs. And, and what do we do with all the jobless? I think that's, I think that they're going in, and that's going to be what they're going to be worried about. Like, oh, there's going to be all these people losing their jobs. We need a UBI, and I'm going to, I'm going to say, well, you know, let's let's take a look at what history might have to tell us about technology and job loss. So, I, I, so that is an opportunity for me to give a very different message. And because I'm in DC and work for a think tank, um, you know, I have that. I, I certainly have that opportunity. I think. I, I think if there are, uh, I think that there are uh, organizations or think tanks that seem to be embracing kind of a pro-progress view, uh, give them money or start up your own. I think the more, I think the more the better. But I, I think this message is still so novel that you can kind of gobsmack people by. I remember I, I was doing a podcast months ago. And I, we were having a you know a very similar kind kind of conversation as you and I are having, Brian, and and she and after after the podcast was over, the producer who was a woman about you know probably mid late twenties was like, everything you're saying about the future that it, it could be a future of like everybody's richer and healthier and the poorest people in the world could live like you know you know the richest people in the world like Westerners live today. She's like everything I've been told. By everybody I know, is just the opposite, <laughs> and so right. so I think when you Many have, such cases. I think when you're saying something novel, uh, one you have to sort of be. But I think just the novelness of it can be used as an asset because people haven't heard it before, and maybe they'll have more of an open mind because they don't they don't have all these automatic responses in their head because it's just so new. So like so my like so in my small way, and I hope I hope with the you know the book we know which does have you know, like a policy agenda chapter and and uh i think i think sort of the novelness and freshness of this argument when combined with what's actually happening or the, the best argument is an argument that seems to reinforce what people see going on around them and if what people right. end up seeing going around on around them is all of a sudden they look up in the sky and there's three other space stations. And if what they see going around them is, uh, you know, uh, nuclear reactors being built near them and 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 government officials going on announcing the next few, you know, the next uh, the new fusion breakthrough. And then that argument, no matter 
which hopefully will be powerful and eloquent and persuasive, will be reinforced by the reality swirling about people. Then I think then I think you have a have a chance. Hmm. I'm just kind of skeptical to you know that this kind of like correspondence theory um of of like storytelling i don't know like it seems to me that things on average have still gotten better in the past few years we can say like save for yes. um you know 2020 right but that doesn't last few years seem I mean, to i'd rather live now i'd rather live now than 1990 1980 you know 1970 or or 2000 or 2000 i'd rather i'd take today i often say that what I'd like to live in the past, like I wouldn't want to live in last week, like you know, no, 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 thanks. But it's right. But a lot of people they say they want to, right? Well, like like you have a lot of people because they've forgotten you know, how, the pa- how, the ba- how bad track. the past sucked, right? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of like rosy backward thinking, and uh, you know, I. I, I I recently showed my kids the house I grew up in because it was just because it went on sale. And, you know, the, uh, you know, it was, you know, it was really nice inside. It was, you know, it was, you know, beautiful hardwood floors, open kitchen, flat screen TVs. I'm like, they're like, I thought you said it, you had it tough. And, and I'm like, that wasn't my house. My house didn't look like that <laughs> at all. Also, that house was 90 degrees in the middle of July. It did not have a beautiful central air system. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of just really rosy backward thinking about people, you know, who would not last, who would not last 15 minutes, you know, you know, it, you know living like they did like in the 70s with with no air conditioning, crappy food, uh, no variety, uh, Again, so that that nostalgia is really, I think, misplaced. And if you know, if people went and lived like that for a while, it would evaporate rather quickly. Right, but the idea here is that you know people are going to see things changing around them. They're going to see the real impact of these technologies, and that's going to change their mind. But the the problem I have with that narrative is that that's not what happened in the past few years. Right. That's not what happened with social media. That's not what happened with like Google Maps. Right. You, you'd think that there'd be a, you know, like a whole, you know, movement around how great Google Maps are. That hasn't really happened either. Um, I, I know some people who are using ChatGPT and it's like part of their, you know, ordinary life now, mostly mostly college students. They're not like they, they still use it. You know, if they ask them, you know, do you approve of ChatGPT? Would you want to get it banned? You know, they would say no, of course. But the kind of enthusiasm you're you're talking about there, I haven't seen any of it. Like, like I'm not sure, you know, and especially in the long term, if I were to place a guess, you know, just based on what happened recently, you know, and when I say recently, I mean like the past decades, basically since the Apollo project. I don't think that there's it's going to create a lot of optimism. I think people will continue to react to it in this you know, in this way where they take it for granted or they focus on the zero sum, you know, like, I, I, I'm not sure why you think that people like, like there's this, there's this relationship that you talk about where you say, you know, like more progress will make people react to it more, react to progress more positively. And I'm just not sure that's happened at all. So has it happened in the, uh, you know, I think we mentioned this earlier, you know, I, I guess mine is sort of is sort of the accumulation theory that if we, that 
it, I think it does take time for people to change their minds and see the world differently. And listen, I think if but, we, well, we've had no, time, no, no, like no, are no, people thinking think of have. things differently like now? Well, I think if we had, I think if we had five straight years of economic growth at 4%, which is basically what we had in the late nineties, I think people would be pretty positive. Right. I mean, mm. I mean, I mean, because that's like that's actually like happened where we've had stretches of when people economic growth has been very strong and we didn't worry about inequality. I mean, like the 90s wasn't like the 1890s. I mean, like it wasn't that long ago. It may seem long ago to you, but it's I think it's a very powerful example when I, when you have like an all boats rising and, you know, People aren't going to be obsessed with the downsides of these technologies. It seems to all kind of be working. Everything seems to be firing all cylinders. Some people are getting richer than me, but guess what? I, I, I'm doing better. Uh, and so I think that to me, that is a pretty good example. That's not that long ago of how people's attitudes can be very pro-progress. Uh, yeah, we can have mourning I, in America. I, again. I, don't, I don't see why... Th- I. I Listen, if we're going to have these changes, but we're still going to have, you know, people don't see it. Ha- pe- people don't see their lives, you know, continually getting better, whether it's wages, whether it's diseases they're not suffering from. Then probably if these are not significant, to- I mean, I mean, a lot of the book is based on the idea that we're seeing significant technologies that will not only have significant economic impacts that will be measurable uh, by statisticians, but we will, that will be obvious in your own life. And again, I think a lot of people just don't have a very clear memory uh, of that happening. I hope it does happen. I think yeah, it will. That's a good, that's a good pushback. You're right. I don't, I don't remember morning in America, right? That, that was, was even that was morning in America. Morning America was in the eighties. Yeah. So this is actually beyond morning in America, the nineties. Right, right. I mean, it was so really interesting. Yeah, the Clinton years, yeah. you know, we but at the very point, and at the very yeah. point I point out, and there's a great piece that just as the economy was taking off in the nineties and just because we had this really kind of nasty recession, in the early nineties at the very moment, the economy was beginning to boom. There was this huge article in the New York Times, quoting a bunch of economists, quoting Alan Greenspan, saying, we must give up the dreams of prosperity <laughs> and faster growth forever. Unbelievable. I mean, the timing was unbelievable. At the very, it was already beginning. It was happening. Uh, they were late. And I'm hoping that that the kind of negativity, I think, I think the skepticism you're showing, Brian, is well, I mean, I think that's an utterly legitimate like a skepticism to have. Uh, but I think it can change. And I hope that you're, I hope that you're uh, not 100% skeptical. I'll take, I'll, I'll take 5%, 95% skeptical. Just give me that five and I'll build off from that. Yeah, I do. I think my disposition is to be more optimistic, you know, um, I do have more pushback on you, you know, from the populist perspective or from the left-wing perspective, because you know that's part of that that's part of the podcast, right? But I do think, you know, at least for me, like the, the, this is how I think about it, right? For for my own life, will my own life be more convenient? Even just producing this podcast, you know, the transcripts for this podcast are one hundred percent automated now, right? Like my life, like is, is getting better. The life of my friends are noticeably getting better, and. If if that's, you know, 
if that's going to be surrounded with a positive narrative or a negative narrative. I hope it's a positive narrative. But at the end of the day, I think things are going to get better. Um, One of my favorite quotes, and I got, and I'm going to paraphrase it. You know, why is it that we see nothing but progress behind us, but we anticipate nothing but disaster ahead of us? And when I look back, I see basically progress. Like I said, I wouldn't want to live 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Absolutely not. To me, I would rather live today. So why would I, why would my natural inc- inclination be to think that the next, uh, that the next years will automatically be worse? I mean, my, my bias based on history absolutely should be, should be optimistic. And again, maybe I'm like you, maybe that's just my natural inc- inclination, but I also think it's a proper reading of history. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do think that's the case. Um, so yeah, I'm going to ask once again, maybe something more specific. What's one thing that you can do or like, okay, let's say you are uh, a venture capitalist listening to this podcast. Let's say I'm, or, I'm you know, sorry, like a let's young say that I'm who? Let's say that you're a venture capitalist oh, venture listen, cap- listening right. to this podcast right. or, you know, you're a young person listening to this podcast uh, maybe like a software engineer or something, or let's say you're a policymaker, you know, you're, you're a staffer listening to this podcast. That's the three, you know, that's the three from the new world podcast, um, audience demographics. That, that, that those, you know? those are your core listeners. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is one thing that each of them can do, uh, like right now? I think in their own, given like their own space, their own specialty and their own sector. And like I said, I have seven kids, most of whom are adults. So I'm going to give, I would give the exact same piece of advice uh, to your listeners of that age uh, as I would to my kids, which is you can make a difference. You, you can, you're, you know, if you do something of value that other people think is valuable, then you can make an actual measurable tangible difference in the world if i was you know and I, you know i i i i i'm not sure of the next i i would like i i would love when i read about venture capitalists uh you know you know putting m- money into uh sort of the you know what they call about the cool shit futurism genes uh dreams of the 60s you know space energy you know biology ai i love that stuff uh, and I assume that stuff's going to make for good investments. I, you know, I, I, I don't give actual investment advice, but certainly, I think if I was a, uh, I, if I worked in politics, uh, I would, I, I, I would think hard about policies that would, that would enable the sort of innovations that we've been talking about actually happening in the real world. Um, I think you can find people on both sides of the aisle to make, I mean, I mean getting a bill passed is hard. It helps if you have people on both sides for it. I think you can actually begin to say like, hey, like this is an obstacle to a world that will make us, you know, wealthier, healthier, and, you know, uh, you know, a, a cleaner planet. Like you can do that. Like you're that, that it is really hard, but we have enough out there technologically that if we make it happen, we can make those other things happen as well. Uh, again, I'm not sure anything I've said here is actionable investment ad- advice, but I think I think if people know that 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 like the changes they make can actually happen and make a difference, I think they're more likely to do them and have the enthusiasm to put up 
with like the difficulties in making those changes happen and happen. And I think they're more likely to push forward. So I'd, I would say push forward and uh, faster, please. Yes, that's great. Um, last question of the show this is the last question of the show for everyone. Ah, I, and, uh, and I don't know. Uh, go, hit me. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, what is one thing in the world that has too much chaos and needs more order? And one thing that has too much order and needs more chaos. Hopefully something we haven't talked about. <laughs> uh, one thing that has uh, too much chaos. We'll start with that one. There's too much chaos and uh, more needs needs a lot more order. Um, uh, well, let me let me do them. I'll, I'll flip it around. Like, oh, good. Well, we'll I, I we you know I think chaos. Another word for chaos is like dynamism, the ebb and flow, companies rising, companies falling, uh, sectors rising. That, that, that is the lifeblood of a prosperous economy. So absolutely like we need that kind of, that is, that is the, that is good kind of, that is the good kind of chaos. You have an economy without chaos, without dynamism. Uh, then you have a stagnant economy. I mean, I want I want the CEOs of Apple, and Google, Microsoft to be every day wake up thinking that that there is some somebody somewhere. Maybe it's another company that will then attack like their core strength is one one innovation away from destroying their business model. That's the kind of on the verge of absolute chaos. We mean that is that is classic Schumpeterian creative destruction. So uh, I think, and if I was European, I'd say that even more. You need even more of that kind of chaos over there. So I love that kind of chaos. Oh, uh, less chaos. I think um, uh, it's so it'd be so easy that we need less chaos in our families and more a little more order uh, in our families. So I'll uh, even though we did mention that before, um, I, that you know that's something I've been writing about lately, and there's new research. Uh, supporting what I think are people, a lot of people's natural judgments. So I think we could use a, a, a little more order uh, there. And obviously there's a, you know, there's a, that creates sort of a natural tension, but that's why we have public policy. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jim. Uh, uh, yeah. Great. Loved it. Loved it. Uh, I, thanks so much. It's been a delight. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Pethokoukis. If you did, the number one way you can help the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. You can also help us out by leaving a five-star review, uh, giving us a subscription, sharing it on social media, and also you can subscribe to the Substack for articles, uh, which are most of which are free, and also give us a paid subscription if you want to help the show financially as well. As always, there'll be a post-podcast reflection. You should see that on your RSS feed if you're already subscribed. And that one will only be for paid subscribers. There I discuss some of the themes of the episode, some of the coalitional factions that I'm seeing right now in front of me with, you know, the differences between EAs, with many of the kind of ongoing intra-tech debates or disagreements wouldn't quite call them fights. I think they're still much more civil than that, especially if you look at something comparable, say, in Republican politics. It's definitely not quite the stage of a fight, but I'll have thoughts on that and on the limits of techno-optimism as well. That's another topic that really does interest me, especially given the past few guests on the show. And, of course, either way, 
If you're free or if you're paid, you'll see another great episode next Monday. See you then.